This week on Geek Explained, we're celebrating 250 episodes of the podcast by kicking off our annual celebration of Marvel's Merry Mutants. Welcome back to X May. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is episode 250 of the podcast. Uh, it's crazy to think we've made it this far. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, whether you were there from the beginning or you've jumped on somewhere along the way. Uh, this is a huge milestone for us, and I could not be more grateful and more thankful that you are here to celebrate this milestone with me. And to celebrate, said my milestone we are kicking off x may 2023 this is our now annual celebration for the third year in a row where i dedicate the entire month of may to the x-men we will be celebrating them all month long the entire month five weeks filled with x-men content to also celebrate their 60th anniversary which is coming up real soon and to kick things off for the festivities here for our third X-May. I am going to be joined by Connor Goldsmith of Cerebro, also celebrating a recent milestone for his podcast. Uh, just crossed 100 episodes for him. I had a wonderful time chatting with Connor and going back in time to the vaults and checking out the comic that started it all. We're talking X-Men number one, revisiting that comic, everything that went into it, everything that's come out of it. We had a wonderful conversation. I cannot wait to share that here with you. We also have our latest weekly review on the final season of The Flash, and of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. So make sure you stay tuned after the jump for all that but for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I sit down with Connor Goldsmith and revisit X-Men number one. X-Men, X-Men. Sixty years ago, an idea became a sensation. The X-Men, the strangest superheroes of all, grew from a small group of teenage heroes into a global phenomenon. And now, as we stand on the cusp of their 60th anniversary, we're traveling back in time to see just how this uncanny dream began. 
Welcome back to X-May 2023. This is our annual tradition where I devote the entire month of May to Marvel's Merry Mutants. And this one is special. This one's really exciting for me. Uh, we are revisiting the thing that started it all, X-Men number one, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, putting in the work to set the basis and the foundation that everything would grow out of, more or less. And I am joined in this retrospective by a guest that I am really excited to have on the show, quite possibly the definitive podcasting resource for X-Men in all their forms, Connor Goldsmith of Cerebro. Welcome to Geek Explained. Thank you so much, Eric. Um, I, I would say I must tip the hat to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. They really... Yes created the space and I don't think I would be able to do what I do without them so I always want to shout them out but that's very kind of you to say and thank you very much uh, I'm excited to be here because I accidentally ghosted you last year because I'm just bad at keeping up with the podcast inbox because I get so many questions and like I have a I have the mod team from the discord help me with it now just because it fills up really fast and I don't want to miss things like this that are not you know a question for an episode I'm doing like three months from now. For sure. Um, but I'm glad to be with you uh, this year. And this is a fun exercise for me because I don't talk about the Silver Age stuff that much on my show. Right. Because the franchise is so different after Giant Size and then especially once Claremont is writing. And the 60s stuff outside of nostalgia moments that reframe a lot of it, like yeah. season one or first class or the Bendis time travel teens mm -hmm. were very different from the 60s characters in certain ways. The uh, Otherwise, it, it's more just backgrounding. And so much of what I talk about on my show isn't really relevant to it. So I tend to skip over it. And the only times I've really explored it in depth on the podcast are when I was either covering one of the original five X-Men or Havoc or Polaris uh, and when I have been on Gray Malkin Lane with Chad Anderson, which yeah. focuses on the Silver Age stuff. Uh, so I'm excited to dig into this because it is where it all began. And the most interesting thing about it to me is how little resemblance it bears to anything we think of as X-Men. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's wild going through it and seeing characterization, seeing concepts, seeing... I mean, just the power sets of certain characters that don't at all resemble what they are today. <laughs> like, you could take this as a completely separate idea if you didn't slap on the X-Men title and logo with it. And it's it's fascinating how much has changed over that time. Well, like you said, the big cultural reset that was giant-sized. Yeah, and I think it's also, I mean, even Lee and Kirby, they, they find the minority element eventually but it takes them until no but it, it i mean it takes yeah. them until the sentinel right. arc to make it like mutants are a menace humans want to destroy them yeah. in that way uh, and that's what claremont really latches on to and turns into the core theme right. of x-men but initially stan lee's concept for x-men was just it's getting exhausting figuring out a new <laughs> origin story for every hero what if they just were born with them and, yeah. <laughs> you know, that was it. That was the idea. And that's why, in addition to the huge popularity of the X-Men after Claremont took over, that's why there are so many mutant characters, because it's yeah. really easy to just say it's in their DNA. It's easy. Actually, although 
in this story, as we'll get to, it's not in their DNA. No. It's exposure to radiation that makes you a mutant uh, in the womb. So, you, you know, and that's true through the 60s. It's not until Claremont introduces Moira McTaggart that mutation becomes genetic at all. Yeah. Well, and the idea of the hated and feared concept mm -hmm. isn't a thing in this. No, like you said, like not. no one's even heard of them. No one's heard of them. No one's heard of Xavier. No one's heard of the X-Men. By the end, all the soldiers are like, we love the, the X-Men. This is great. <laughs> I mean, throughout the 60s, Xavier is working with the FBI. Like yeah. they have a government liaison, Agent Duncan, who like, is their ally in government. Right. One of my favorite weird little things that Fabian Niciesa did in the 90s was establish that that character who was dead by then was also the FBI liaison to the Black <laughs> Womb Project, which was yeah. Mr. Sinister's evil mutant project. So like adding a little bit of like, a, hmm, Charles, maybe that was a bad choice, you know, <laughs> retrospectively. I feel like you could say that about a lot of things that Charles has done. Well, that's what's interesting, right? Yeah. Is that this 60s this issue in particular plays it really straight with all yeah. of these characters and then you have 60 years now in a couple months of later writers complicating all seven of the characters we're introduced to here those being scott summers or slim summers as he's referred to summers. for this entire issue they never say scott Warren Worthington, Hank McCoy, Bobby Drake, Charles Xavier, and Magneto, who won't have a name besides Magneto for a very long time. For a good long while, yeah. And and a lot of these people are introduced as their classic, like, Lee and Kirby archetypes. They're mm -hmm. all incredibly, quote-unquote, interesting. And they are a, a kind of a pastiche of, again, it's, it's obviously the 60s, so there's not a lot of... Uh, non-straight white representation in sure. the in the comic though retroactively as we would come to find out you can look at this with the knowledge of stuff like the bendis run and everything that is associated with uh with eric being a holocaust survivor and all of that, well, right, that would later get baked in magneto's not a holocaust survivor until claremont establishes that in the yeah. 80s so like there's a lot here i mean he's also not friends with xavier or right. like the old friends with xavier thing is established by claremont in the 80s that's a retcon so the vibe here is very very different mm -hmm. i do think that while it is all white characters it is relevant as it is with many golden age and silver age superhero stories to point out that stanley and jack kirby are both jewish chris claremont right. is also jewish brian michael bendis is also jewish and they're all bringing that experience chris claremont was raised catholic but his mother was jewish um so there's a certain level to at which that is the core metaphor of the 60s stories. I've talked about this a lot on my show. Yeah. I grew up in Westchester, New York. And, you know, my town that I grew up in, I'm Irish and Jewish, Connor Goldsmith. It's like kind of a weird <laughs> mashup name. Um, it's like being, you know, Seamus Jewenberg. It's like very odd. Yeah, it's as a, Eric Azana with a Scottish and Filipino. Like. Right. You get it. It's a very similar <laughs> energy. Um, but so. The uh, the vibe that I get from 60s X-Men is that it's about a bunch of kids who look white, but there's something secret and different about them, and they go to a special school where they learn things they're not supposed to talk to their friends about, 
And the goal is to fit in like a regular teen in Westchester County, the town I grew up in, which is about 30 minutes by car from Salem Center is, I called it like an eggshell town because it was all mm. Irish, Italian and Jewish and Albanian after the coast of our conflict. But that was not when I was born um, <laughs> or when, when we moved there, when I was little, I was born in the city. But uh, basically in the 60s in particular, this would have been a core tension for Jewish people in New York. You see it in Mad Men, for mm -hmm. example, as a big theme in the first season when he's dating well, not dating because he's married, but you get what right. I mean. When he's having yeah. an affair with Rachel Menken, <laughs> who's Jewish, it's definitely like a, a core thing. Part of why superhero comics exist is because the artists, the Jewish artists, couldn't get jobs at ad agencies. Yeah. So that is something that is a little bit lost in the sliding time scale, but that I think makes a lot of sense. But it's all allegorical here. None of these characters are Jewish, except Bobby, who will be revealed to be half Jewish again in the 80s by J.M. <laughs> yeah. Demetrius, who is half Jewish. So that literalized it. But back in this story, they're all wasps who are natural people to be in Westchester County, except <laughs> there's this secret thing that makes them different. And in that sense, I think the 60s X-Men are interesting as, like, I think that the way Stan Lee would later be like, oh, of course we were talking about Fox civil rights. I don't think that's true. Yeah. Uh, I think Claremont was, and Claremont was also talking about gay rights very openly by Absolutely. the 80s. Um I, I do think that that becomes part of the X-Men by the 70s once Storm is in the mix. Yeah. But in these stories, I don't, I, I think Stanley was like, yeah, of course, obviously, because it's there. But I think that for me, it feels more like the X-Men are kind of the Shamrim, which if you're not familiar, the Shamrim are like a neighborhood watch basically in orthodox mm. jewish neighborhoods okay. and their purpose is to police the community themselves so that you don't have to get the cops involved and to me and, and like that's a, they're big in brooklyn for example where a lot mm. of these creators are from so i think that the x-men in this issue specifically, and then throughout the 60s for the most part, are presented as the good Jews keeping track of the evil Jews and making sure that the Gentile authorities don't have to get involved because when they do, it's bad for everyone. It's a right. Shonda Fittigoyim and you need to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, and so for me, that that is really a core element here. It is, however, communicated in these waspy characters, much like Steve Rogers of is course. a story very much about Jewish resistance to Nazism, but told through an Irish character, an Irish American character, because that was like white enough. It's like we're going degrees <laughs> higher in terms of like who's acceptably white in the 60s or in Captain America's case in the 40s. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just think that's all super interesting. I do think that the book works much better in the 80s when it's about mm. Storm and Kitty Pride, and Absolutely. you can actively address like, oh, this is like racism or this is like anti-Semitism, but also here are the ways it's different. And, you know, yeah. that I think was easier than the stuff here, but the stuff here had to be so veiled because you weren't even like allowed to talk about Judaism in a 60s superhero comic. It was considered inappropriate um, to talk about religion unless it was like casually, you know, 
Superman goes to church, but like everybody right. goes to church, right? So like, who cares, you know? Um, but so that's that's just the most interesting thing to me about the 60s X-Men is that they are essentially mutant cops policing other mutants, which is very different from the role that, I mean, some would argue, Magneto would argue, the Mutant Liberation <laughs> Front would argue that that's always what they are. Right. But in the 60s, that's presented as like unequivocally what they are and it's a good thing. Like they're informing on evil mutants to the feds. Well then, and that's that's an interesting, because I, I had never looked at it that way, but as, you know, as someone who comes from like an Asian background, that mm -hmm. idea of like a model minority yes, is a exactly. very interesting way to like veil all this. Because like you said, it's it's the good, quote unquote, the good minorities policing the bad minorities and how that is established in an early 60s where, like you said, everything's kind of veiled, everything's kind of uh, double speak for other things without having to step for, far enough outside of the line to stir anything up is not just a way to kind of enrich this text because there's ton of a ton of stuff that you can pull just from the actual uh, the actual you know words and pictures that are there it's fascinating to me that the idea of you know model minorities being represented through the x-men is something mm -hmm. that isn't I, I don't know if i would say it's as prevalent now and no, well, certainly not on Krakoa, right? For sure. But even before that, I think a lot of writers were complicating it. Morrison complicated it most of all. Of course. Uh, but Claremont is the one who started introducing alternative approaches, like the Morlocks, characters mm -hmm. who were doing it other ways, whereas here it's the X-Men or evil mutants. And I yeah. do think that it is in large part that model minority mentality mm -hmm. that you know, the idea of blending. I mean, it's no accident that Jacob Kurtzberg and Stanley Lieber are known to us yeah. as Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Right. Um, and I mean, my brother-in-law is Chinese and mm -hmm. he, you know, I think it's the, what you're saying. It's a very similar kind of, of notion. It's what a lot of black activists have described as respectability politics. And I mm -hmm. think that that is definitely what the X-Men are trafficking in the 60s. And that's part of why I find it a little bit less captivating, I think. Right. I, I become more interested once it's a more complex question. But I don't think that the complex question could be asked without Lee and Kirby posing it in the first place. Yeah, definitely. It's it's something that you need you need a basis like this. You need a groundwork to be able to kind of build out of. It's like any planting any plant and planting any tree. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to tend the soil and make sure that things can grow for it to get there. And so with the with the concept of the X-Men, like you you mentioned the uh Stanley saying like I can't keep bombarding these kids with gamma rays I got to give them like an excuse to have powers without me having to do this every time and it being this still radiation in some way though like we said the the revelation of oh it's in your DNA there's a certain x gene that passes along some people get it some people don't it's recessive mm -hmm. is is something that among the many, many ideas that came later and were fundamental to how we see the X-Men now, a lot of the stuff that we, you know, kind of take for granted is established in this issue. Like the yes. idea of the school, 
the idea yes. of Professor the X. Danger Room. The Danger know, Room. It's 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 very lo-fi <laughs> in yes. uh, in the sixties. Purely but, death trap. Yeah, exactly. It's just you know insane death traps, but. Also, telepathy, which was not mm -hmm. a common superheroic device in the way that it becomes almost omnipresent in X-Men yeah. to the point where there are very few Marvel comics telepaths who are not mutants. I can think right. of only a handful. It's like Moondragon, Mantis, uh, Topaz, who I love, but who nobody's mm -hmm. used in like 15 years. Um because that witches miniseries was so bad. God love them. <laughs> yeah. uh, At least they tried. <laughs> but you know, like it's it's unusual right. uh, for a telepath not to be a mutant because of Charles Xavier and then Jean Grey. Once they kill Xavier off in the sixties, mm -hmm. which they later find a way out of, but she becomes telepathic after Xavier dies because right. by that point there's a telepath directing the team is such a key element of the story. It also allows Jack Kirby to get really creative with the action sequences yeah. because Xavier's thought bubbles can just be added later over it. You don't and need anywhere. to show them. Yeah, you don't need to show them talking to him ever because Stan can just drop the thought bubble, the telepathic thought bubble wherever he wants. Mm -hmm. um, and that is something about the Marvel method that they used that is really obvious in these 60s stories where Stan would send an outline of the plot that was, you know, a couple paragraphs usually. Jack would draw the issue and then Stan would write the dialogue and put it in the comic. So because it's an, and that order, like that's how Claremont worked too. Yeah. He, that's how Dan Slott still works. Uh, and there are writers who still work that way. It has gone somewhat out of fashion in favor of full scripting before any drawing is done. Right. But, you know, it, it's a collaborative process that allowed them to bang out a lot more comics than they could if the writer had to sit down and write full script for every issue. Um, and Xavier is a really neat way around that because you don't have to have talking head scenes at all. You can just right. literally have the dialogue be anywhere you want. And uh, that is really useful in terms of economy of page space. I mean, the danger room sequence lasts many pages here. Mm -hmm. And in later stories, a training montage, like that's going to be a couple panels, you right. know, as opposed to here's them just doing this with Xavier saying things to them in a thought bubble in each panel. <laughs> uh, so it was innovative in that way. Um, it's also innovative in the way that it introduces the characters. Right. This is different from the Avengers, for example, which were mostly pre-existing characters, or from the Fantastic Four who are introduced as a group, the dynamic is immediately different because Gene joins the team in this first issue. And so Gene is our point of view character learning about the X-Men, which for a female right. character is very unusual. Claremont takes this to its most extreme and unprecedented conclusion in Kitty Pride right. later. But even here in this first few issues of 60s X-Men, for it to be the the real living doll that they're all like so <laughs> hot for, who we're kind of identifying with is right. interesting. And I think, again, it's like Claremont revolutionizes what a woman can be as a character in a comic book. But it is Jean Grey having subjectivity in this first issue that allows 
that he creates space for that to happen. Uh, so there's a lot here that I think is foundational. It's just also crazy how completely different it is from everything <laughs> we think of when we think of X-Men. Yeah. Um, right down to the fact that the uniforms here are very clearly yellow and black, like yes. the New Mutants uniforms. And they're confused for blue and gold by later writers because the classic coloring uses navy blue to highlight, highlight. black. Yeah. It's like Lois Lane's hair, you know, like mm. it's not meant to be blue. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that that th there's just a lot of fun stuff here. And I'm yeah. I'm I'm I've been rambling now for what, like 20 minutes. And, you know, my show runs long. So I want to oh, let absolutely. you steer. Where are we going? Direct <laughs> me. So. I think with the the creation of the characters, we've done I think a pretty pretty good job settling that, getting them together. I know that in the lead up to creating this, Stan Lee wanted to call them the mutants. Have mm -hmm. it as simple, but the editor at the time, whose name escapes me, uh, he was basically like, I don't know what mutants are. I don't. <laughs> how are we going to label them the mutants? So we don't know who they are. So they decide to go with the term X Men, and it's always been a point of contention on what you know the X for X Men means. Is it Xavier's men? Well, is it the X gene? in this issue, he gives an Xavier <laughs> claims that it stands for extra power. Extra power. But that's obviously horseshit right i mean can i swear on your podcast i'm Please, sorry I with asked. reckless abandon uh you know i mean because his name is professor x it's very and it's very clear what it's about the x gene by the way i should say is not a term that is used until grant morrison right so that's you know there moira mctaggart isolates the x factor as mm, something yes. in biology that m causes mutation but isolating it to a gene like a specific set of genes the x gene is an ex is like the expression they use but it's presumably several related just based on how dna works right. uh, but like the, the idea of the phrase the x gene that comes in 2001 i want to say yeah. so yeah it all comes out of professor xavier having an x in his name really <laughs> yeah. and the extra power like i mean maybe they thought of extra power and then made him professor x but like in the story it was already his name yeah it's, you know? it's, it's a it's a chicken and the egg seat you know, situation. And I think with him working also, with the FBI too, and you know, the idea of G-Men and they even bring mm -hmm. that into first class. It's very much like, it, it's sort of a combo of the G-Men and Planet X, which is like yeah. a sci-fi concept that was popular at the time, right? So so X to mean strange. I mean, they're, they're mm -hmm. hailed on the cover as the strangest teens of all. Yeah. And, the adjective that will come to be used for them is uncanny, right? Which is used in this issue at the very end. The very end, yeah. It's not until after Dark Phoenix Saga that the book becomes Uncanny X Men, but it's called, they're called the Uncanny X Men in the title pages from much earlier on as right. like an adjective. Uh, and uncanny is uh, has sort of a specific meaning that's not exactly the same as strange. It's related, but it's like, the kind of strange that makes you uncomfortable. Uncanny Valley, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so it's like close enough, but not quite. And again, this is what I'm saying about how I think the 60s X-Men are very much about the Jewish experience in America mm. in the same way that Superman is. Like Superman is an alien because yeah. the point is he was adopted by this wasp Ameri waspy American couple in the Midwest, but 
he's actually from like a planet where they all have Hebrew names. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's, and he's Moses. I mean, yes, they, put him in a, they put him in a boat and pushed him away. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's one of those things where the experiential nature that the writers are bringing to it, it's always there. It's waiting for yeah. Chris Claremont to pull it out. It's just so much subtler in the 60s stories because <laughs> uh, the time was yeah. subtler in terms of the social commentary you were allowed to make in, in superhero books. Right. Or well, in any entertainment that was geared toward children. Yes. And I mean, there there wasn't a lot, you know, that were kind of filling that void as well. I mean, there there is kind of the major controversy of which came first, the X-Men or the Doom Patrol, which has always yeah. been a fascinating discussion. I, I mean, I love Doom Patrol. Don't Same. get me wrong. I, I think that the similarities are mostly superficial. Right. Uh, and... You know, I called Stanley out for bullshitting a little bit earlier. Love Stanley, to be clear. Anybody <laughs> listening, but Stanley was a salesman. That yes. was like what he was best at at the end of the day. So Stanley, hearing people say this reminds me of the civil rights movement, and going, "Of course, that's what we were thinking of," is very in keeping <laughs> yeah. with like you know he was a sales guy. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way, you know, there are lots of things that he's said over the years that I'm not sure I 100 buy, but mm. I do believe him when he says that he didn't rip off doom patrol because i think outside of like they're weird and they have a mentor in a wheelchair yeah it's not really that similar right I, and I, I think it it comes down to just and they were in like development at the stuff. same time right like we do have records of like you know sometimes that just happens yeah. blackest night and uh apart from each other yeah blackest night and necrotia happened the same year didn't they oh, like there right. are things yeah. that just you know, sometimes something's in the air. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would love to say that that's why a lot of, you know, the big comic events are kind of all the same right now. But I mean, who do, who's to say? Who's to say? I really? don't even find them all the same right now, though. I've actually I actually think that the most recent comic events have been kind of interestingly experimental in a way that event books didn't feel for like I thought Judgment Day was fantastic. Judgment Day was one? fantastic. That Absolutely was great. Enjoyed it. It was, and uh, it was I just one of those... loved Sins of Sinister, too. That was so outside the box and weird. Absolutely. I think the, the time displacement of it made it unique yeah, for me. Yeah, Because we're used to kind of, especially if you look at... We're a, used to an Age like of Apocalypse or Days yes, of Future Past take All moment, sticking but the it, same time. It took that and then did the Powers of Ten thing where yes. it jumped further and further into the future. And that was really cool and was a neat send-up to Powers of Ten. Right as the fall of X is coming, you know, it, it yeah. was smart. It was just very smart. Kieran and Al and Sai all did a great job with that. Al Ewing They're is probably incredible. my favorite writer in comics right now, uh, today. Like, yeah. I think he's just an absolute genius. I'm, I'm rereading anything. his uh, his Guardians run right now, and it's, mm. it's still, still might so be underrated. my favorite run yeah. out of the entire history of that team. But... Yeah, it's it's interesting because like like you said, those those events specifically are fantastic. I think as the you know years have gone by, we've kind of gotten out of that, you know, banging say, action like, figures together every yes, summer. Two thousand seven like, heroes to versus heroes. Twenty sixteen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Such and such versus such and such. Right. <laughs> Um, in humans versus x-men avengers versus yeah, well, x-men everybody we versus x-men we don't talk about Inhumans versus x-men in my household <laughs> that's not we don't acknowledge that book. no 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 death of x nowhere in cuter over here i actually so here i actually kind of like death of x it's i like humans versus x-men itself that i can't stand but death yeah. of x i think is pretty good the the twist in that i still think is the twist of, is really good the fantastic it's just that, 
it's because it, Emma would do that. It's the, the, it's when they then in Inhumans versus X and turn her into a mustache twirling crazy lady <laughs> that I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous yes. and I hate it. Um, but anyway, we we really can't. We can't. We can't. We no, can't, no, we can't. no. Th though I will I will say as as a sidebar, getting the uh, the Cerebo crazy on the podcast is, <laughs> is it, it's a bucket list for me. So I appreciate that. Well, happy to provide. <laughs> if so, there was never a more apart from like House of M, there's never been a more she went crazy story <laughs> than in Humans versus X Men. So like it's never been more appropriate. Or maybe I think know, that's the first time I ever said it on the show was talking about yes. M in Humans versus X Men in in the first episode. Yeah, I and I and I will say just and, and I'll get into gushing about your show near the end here because I will. But um, <laughs> it's the 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 amount of long term jokes and running gags really just it's you're an inspiration. But thank you. It's mostly I'm just like a weirdo who's obsessive compulsive. And when I see that something works. I'm like, well, let's try that again and see if it Same. still works. And it's worked you know, for the don't worry episodes, about it. So. The don't worry about it catchphrase was just, uh, I got really exhausted during the Wolverine episode <laughs> yeah. because there's so much Wolverine shit that you don't have to worry about. But people yep. thought it was so funny that now I'm like, okay, now it's a bit, you know? And I still see those shirts all over oh, the place. Yeah. I, I saw oh, yeah. a couple at WonderCon. Those sell really well. Yeah. Uh, it's it's cute. I mean, I, <laughs> I the just the Krakow and DWAI. Yep. So let's get let's get into this issue. Let's yes. talk about this X-Men don't miss this fabulous first issue. I kind of miss the In the, the sensational Fantastic yes. Four style. X-Men versus Magneto Earth's most powerful supervillain. Oh, and it is the strangest everything. superheroes of all on this yeah. first one. Yeah. It and becomes strangest teens later on. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think they wanted to impress. Because that's different, right? Like, the Absolutely. Fantastic Four were adults. So were the mm -hmm. Avengers. This was different in being a book about high school students, which was why my dad got really into it. Because he, like, couldn't relate to Reed Richards. But he thought Spider-Man and the X-Men were cool because they yeah. were young i mean he's like you know five when he's reading <laughs> these or whatever but he, he he still they were characters he felt were more relatable and that was what sure. made marvel pull ahead in some ways during the 70s in particular was yeah. that idea that it was they're just more, like you more relatable world outside your window characters yeah yeah so i'm i'm gonna pause the issue real quick because i i ask this to every x may guest and i want to make sure i do my due diligence here how were you specifically introduced to the X-Men? So uh, as people who listen to my show know, to the point where it's on the Cerebro bingo cards that people have made, because <laughs> yeah. I say it to a lot of guests, because my guests don't always listen to the show. My dad's an X-Men collector. Yeah. So uh, I grew up, I sometimes joke that like X-Men is my first language. Like <laughs> I was seven or eight and my dad gave me this issue as like, he gave me the Marvel Masterworks wow. hardcover of the 60s stuff and then the, at the same time they put out the giant size one and the giant yeah. size one is really the one i responded to but i read this one cover to cover until it fell apart too and it, the first marvel masterwork 60s one is this issue through kazar in the savage land mm, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. uh there was a second volume that came out a little bit after that that covered up through the end of like the lee kirby run and a little bit afterward so I uh, I had read I read all this at a very young age, and then because my dad was a collector, he had like reader copies yeah. uh, that were not as nice as the copies that were slabbed, and so <laughs> I it wasn't every issue, but I grew up reading 
back issues mostly 70s yeah. 80s in particular the 80s is my favorite stuff of course. uh and this is because i was growing up in the 90s and i didn't like the 90s comics as much and i wasn't quite sure how to describe why at the time yeah. but in retrospect it's because they were boy books you know they were very macho guy forward kind of books and the claremont x-men is very female focused is very oh, emotionally opera. focused yeah. You know, the women characters are doing things that are important. I mean, in the 90s, if you just come in in the 90s, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Storm and Jean Grey are not particularly important characters because they're <laughs> not in the 90s, particularly, you right. know. Um, and so that was sort of my my entry point. And then they started publishing trades when I was a little older than that. So first it was Dark Phoenix Saga. And then when I was 12 in 2000, they put out Inferno, Fall of the Mutants, From the Ashes, Mutant Massacre. Uh, and I read those out of order because I didn't Oof. know what order to read them in. Yeah. But I read in I read Inferno before the other ones. Shocker. And that, yeah, that's why I imprinted <laughs> on it so hard. Because yeah. that's a hell of a thing to read at 12, as is Mutant Massacre. Mutant Massacre oh, is really much more traumatic than, uh, than anything else. It's kind of wild that... Claremont got away with Mutant Massacre under the auspices of the Comics Code Authority, which by that point was weakening, but like still, still it, a there's thing. a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. Um, but so that was sort of my entry point. At the same time, I was buying the 90s comics that were coming out, but I just was never as passionate about them as I, I was fair. about the uh, the 80s stuff. And then uh, I, I did get really into Grant Morrison's New X-Men. That was coming out when I was in high school. Yeah. Uh, and the focus on Emma and Jean in that kind of brought me back in. Yeah. Well, and it's it's fascinating to I love asking people this because like everyone's journey is different. And yeah, that's what's for sure. Kind of magical about the X. No, I ask this every episode of my yeah. show, too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonderful because, again, it's that idea of everybody is coming into this as you know, obviously a new reader, Stan Lee's favorite thing to say was every comic is someone's first comic. Yeah, and, and no one believed that more than Chris Claremont. Yes. That's why they all have catchphrases that explain what their powers do. Yep, which I love. <laughs> and it's so Oh, me very, too. Jerry yeah. Duggan's been doing it a lot yes! in this run. And there have been people complaining about it. I'm like, you're crazy for How that. could you it's complain my, about it? It's, it's the coolest Sink, thing. They're like, why does Sink always say what he's about to do? I'm like, because it's fun. And that's how X-Men works. He's yep. borrowing a power and he's explaining to you what he's doing because... Otherwise, how will you know what power he's borrowing? It's fun. And also on a team, communication is important. Yeah, It's just people. It's just fun. It's just fun. I like it. But I it's love fun. that kind of, I mean, I miss thought bubbles. I, yeah, I crave same. thought bubbles. So I've, I've gone on so I'm many tangents pro thought over the bubble years. Yeah. Activist. We need more of them. And, and rereading this was just chef's kiss, seeing all the yeah. thought bubbles that were in here. Yeah, I mean, Claremont or Zakowski used to beg Claremont, can they have fewer <laughs> thoughts? Because, like, fitting all the bubbles into the panels is too many. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it was, that was really the aughts when, like, the, it was sort of the Ultimates wave, right? When yeah. it was like every comic needs to be cinematic and like television mm. now. And so we can't have thought bubbles. Only captions. Um, only caption boxes, which I do like, but yeah, they're, just, they're not it, bad it at doesn't, all. It doesn't hit quite the same as no. a big, pensive thought bubble. 
Though I do love the attention to detail when they make different color caption boxes. I different love that people's too. Voices. No, I'm working on a comics project of my own right now. And one of the first things I said to the letter was like in the script was like, this caption box should be this color. Hell yeah. Because uh, I because we're not doing thought bubbles, but I I am definitely I, I want you to know who's thinking. Yes, um, I love that. Yeah. So. No, I, I love that stuff. But yeah, so that's basically, that's my story. Um, I, I, I fell off for a while after the decimation. That's when I got really into DC for like a mm. hot minute. And then they, they were knew, firing on all sorts. But then they knew 52 did everything I liked the way. So I <laughs> yep. went back to Marvel. And then I was just kind of like, nah, well, I guess. And at a certain point, I was like, I was worried. I was like, am I over superhero comics? Like, it's not sparking joy in the same way. And then uh, Krakoa came, yeah. House of X Powers of 10 came. And I actually was. Uh, at the time in Ireland for the Hugo Awards uh, with Kieran Gillen, who's yeah, a friend of mine. Like we weren't there awesome. together, but we were just both there. Right. And it was fun because we like got to get lunch and be like, and talk about, oh my God, can you believe like that Moira McTaggart twist? It blew my mind, you know, stuff like that. So uh, it's really fun that now Kieran's writing yeah. so much of the of the line. Um, and he's yeah, absolutely crushing so, it too. Oh, like I mean, he's the best. He's also like genuinely one of the nicest, sweetest guys in the yeah, business. Like, he just seems a super truly, cool. truly great guy. I met him through my day job. I'm a literary agent uh, right. by day, so I met him through like I was at New York Comic Con and I introduced myself, and he's just like he's just super nice. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. So uh, that's that's my that's my tale. But now I'm like yeah. so back in that it yes. Hurts. Yeah, uh, it's it, it definitely I'm I'm the same way. I don't think I've ever been as financially invested in the X-Men comics as I am year, now. This year Marvel <laughs> very generously put me on the review copies list. Nice. That's awesome. And that was I, I you know, they cuz I do have a big platform at this point. I Absolutely. It's, it's helpful for me to plan the issues. I mean, and review the review copies list means you only get them like 2 days early, but still uh, well, and more importantly, I was spending like thousands of dollars yes. a year in comic books. Yeah. And I just can't afford to do that. So yeah. uh, I'm now now I can read everything, which is really nice. Like I can read Avengers. I can read Iron Man and Captain America and things that I like because I was buying every book in the X line for my yeah. show. I was like, well, something's got to give. And it That's... means I am never going to read Spider-Man. You know what yep. I mean? But like now I can. And it's fun yeah. to do that. Love it. Um, so, Yeah. So let's dig into this issue. Let's we it starts very, I guess, mundane in the way that it is. It's just Professor X sitting in his home. Uh, it's not called the X Mansion just yet, but it is a very large house. And we are introduced to the initial team of yes. the X-Men. Cyclops, president accounted for, sir, the angel reporting, sir. Everybody's very sir. This is drill sergeant. Yes, this is very... and they're all doing, apart from Scott, who's just kind of jogging, Ru they're jogging. all doing something <laughs> movement-oriented that establishes their power. Yep. Warren is flying with his wings. The beast is swinging, swinging in. into the window with his agility and his big feet. Iceman is sliding down a stripper pole. It's a fireman's pole, but it's it's a stripper uh, pole. It's a stripper it's... pole in his little go-go boots with his legs <laughs> crossed. Um, they, they knew what they were doing. I don't think I don't think they did. But that's but that's what's so <laughs> I, funny I think about on Ice the Man. dream subconscious level. That's what I'm saying. Like it's yeah. the collective unconscious. Like well, when Stanley was asked about it, when Bendis did make Iceman gay, and someone asked Stanley about it at a con, and he said, "Did you know that Iceman is gay now?" and he goes. Did you, or did you know that Iceman is gay? And he goes, is he? I didn't know that. <laughs> yep. 
well, good for him, you yeah. know? And it was, it was a very like genuine and sweet reaction. He was just like, sure, you know, why not? <laughs> um, and this is like, I was like, please stop asking this 90 year old man. Yeah. Like, it's like, about stop, stop asking thing. your grandpa about current social well, economics. But it's, it's like, like, just like, leave him alone. He's like, yeah. he, he, stop this. He's, he's, him, he's committed his time. Let him sign autographs in peace. <laughs> Don't walk up to him and say, hey, Andrew Garfield said he'd be open to playing Peter Parker bisexual. Do you think Peter Parker should be bisexual? Yeah. Ask Stan Lee that. Leave him alone. <laughs> we, we, anyway. need, we, we, we need to have that talk with more people, I think, with I comics professionals. I know, I know. But yeah, I do love, and I've, it's well documented on my show, I am a Cyclops boy. He is my favorite. Mm. Uh, my, my Scott and I have a complex relationship. But he's I my know. dad's favorite character. And that's and that's amazing. I'm, I'm glad that he, even though he is maybe the most flawed character on that initial X-Men team. I wouldn't X -Men go that team, far. Oh, on, on the, the initial, initial X-Men team. No, team. no, Hank is way worse than Scott. I I disagree only because he is basically written in this book like he's Ben Grimm, which oh, I oh in the sixties I would agree. 60s, I just yeah. mean that like oh like by the nineties Hank is way absolutely worse than Scott and and looking at how <laughs> things are today he is well Scott I isn't mean, quite but, a war but, criminal but I do think that Percy <laughs> is that's just a logical yes. extension of the last thirty years done a of great these job it's been I mean it's ramped up obviously yeah. but I don't think it's out of the blue no pun intended yeah uh, I think it's been brewing ever since he blew himself back in the <laughs> the seventies so yeah the, the 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 beast now is absolutely the guy who is like you know what this situation needs our past selves at 16 years old well, what i think is going to be day. really fun is like percy's had he hinted in that data in those data pages recently right that like the only backup when beast left like yeah. and took his toys and went home the only backup that was left is the one from when he was an avenger in the 70s yep and i think they're gonna have much like hank to shame scott had the time travel teens come i think they're going to resurrect oh, 70s hank that would and be that's, cool and have him fight the new dark beast who's our beast i mean oh, i think that man. would be fun right and then I, you could have both characters it would be very right? betsy and Connum. like there, there's yeah. two silux no waiting have two beasts so that we can both <laughs> like whichever one you like you can read about that one you know like yeah. i think that that's often the right way to go no, um, no i think they do need to be careful because they've already got two lores running around they've got i think that's temporary though you do think you so think, i think talon's up to no good really yes i am so i am my pet theory and i could be super wrong and especially with the children of the vault book coming with seraphina on the cover right. i might be crazy but i my read on talon was that she's seraphina Ooh, that's a good read i hadn't thought because about that because seraphina in the original children of the vault story her whole mo is like she seduces cannonball with that's illusions right. and uh like because she wants to experience human love yeah and, and it's, so a, it's just one big experiment Cannonball for her. With like a, right. Yeah. And so the, if she's the only one who's up and about in the vault, and then miraculously oh, we find Laura who survived all this time, and we know that Seraphina can alter perceptions that's and shapeshift. True. Yeah, that's a good just point. Just a thought. I've, I think I've, I, I've been love blind to that whole Sure. I mean, I also like, think it's possible that Talon has been flipped by the children. Like, I think there's, there's mm. a lot of different ways that the story could go. Yeah. But... Basically, what I'm saying is I don't think that we're going to have two Lauras forever. I think okay. that I, I think like old man Logan, eventually yeah, one of eventually them has to go away. away and yeah. the one that is going to go away is not going to be the really iconic 
<laughs> version that's super popular, right? right? So, you know, uh, that's my, that's my, and I might, listen, I was convinced that Teen Cable was Strife. So I'm oh, not always right with my that would have been interesting. Theories. You should listen to the episode I did with Anthony Oliver. We spent, it's like, real, it's true folie adieu. Like we spent yeah. three hours going into our Strife theory and Ooh. then like everyone was Strife pilled. And then I had lunch with Jerry and he was like, completely wrong, but a great theory. And I was like, cool, great. <laughs> Those are the best when you're like, you're completely off base. He's like, but, I hey, love that I appreciate idea. that creative just, mind. By that point, it was pretty clear in the comics it wasn't what was happening because there was only like yeah. one issue left. And he was like, he's like, love that concept. And that's what I'm doing. And I was like, okay, <laughs> fair, 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 fair. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, no, but so I, I'm, I'm prone to these conspiracy theories with, mm. uh, with stuff like that. But I just, I think that it has to be more complicated than we just have two Laura's now. I yeah, just don't, that's I don't fair. see it. I just, and I just I want those like, crazy kids to go off into the sunset. I, I, love... I don't think they can. I, I think know. this is. I think it's all part of Sink's greater grand yeah. arc that is the core of the Duggan X Men, in addition to the Scott and Jean dynamic, right? Like those are right. sort of the three poles that the book operates around, which I love. Um, oh, same. I'm loving that book. Um, but anyway, we've only gotten like three panels in yes, let's one, do it. so we should probably. So they uh, they're one thing that I thought was interesting about this is that in this story, Professor Xavier only speaks out loud when it's an emergency. Like serious, and otherwise, yeah. he is, has trained them just to respond to his telepathic commands, and he doesn't even really move. Like no. he's not even they in lift a his wheelchair. Feet up, like... He's in like a recliner. Like yeah. he's not even really super mobile all the time. And it's like, um, did he just train them as like a really ex like cheap maid service or like well i think caretakers <laughs> i think that he it's part of their training to like make them respond instinctively to his telepathic mm -hmm. commands it's just this is something that just gets dropped eventually yeah, right because it's you know just it's weird like yeah. it is uncanny right that their teachers <laughs> yeah. just in all their heads telling them what to do all the time yeah um so most of what we see in the first several pages, as we said earlier, is a danger room sequence where Professor Xavier launches various traps in an attempt to kill them all, but like not actually, but they're pretty lethal traps and yeah. he is, you know, making sure that, I mean, I'm sure he has a button that he could press if like someone was about to die, but they all succeed in their goals. What this functionally does in a useful way is let each of these four characters show us exactly what their power is and a couple different ways it can be used. Right. Like here's how, here's a couple different applications of Cyclops's eye beams. Yep. Warren may have very simple power. He's got wings, but here's a couple different things he can do tricks that he can do like this yeah. hovering maneuver, just in case he can like hummingbird wings. <laughs> if he has to, you know, stay afloat or whatever. So stuff like that, or like Bobby is fooling around. It's established that Bobby is 16. Yeah. And younger than the others. So Professor Xavier doesn't, you know, he he feels that Professor Xavier doesn't take him seriously. But then the second he starts class clowning around in sort of like a Johnny Storm way. Yeah. Uh, Professor Xavier is like, now attack him, you know, and like <laughs> he has to make his little ice uh, slide to shoot the bowling ball back at Hank. Yeah. But yes, as you pointed out, Hank and Bobby in the 60s Lee Kirby stuff are just Ben Grimm and Johnny yeah, Storm. They're just like, Ben and Johnny. It's just them. Um, <laughs> but what I think is interesting is that Scott and Gene are not Reed and Sue. No, not at all. And also, all of the Playboy aspects of Johnny are displaced onto Warren. Right. Like Johnny's kind of split into two characters here. 
Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, why Warren feels extraneous for most of the 60s. I love Warren, but apart from his role as a romantic triangle complication for Scott and Jean, which yeah. never really goes that far. Not really, yeah. He doesn't get much to do uh, until later on when he's, you know, in the champions and the defenders and the next factor. Mm -hmm. Um and you know it's it's interesting because that four person set from Fantastic Four is so tight that yeah. whenever they've tried to add characters to Fantastic Four, they never quite stick. Even even with the kids, sometimes like yeah, I think it, or it's even a when it's like we're going to use She Hulk for a couple yeah. years, but let's it's bring like in never Wolverine or somebody. Yeah, or like Storm and Black Panther are here for a couple issues. Like yeah. it's, it always feels off because that four person unit they're such defined characters. Uh, and here I think these five are all very defined as well, but yeah. it does feel like in splitting the Human Torch into Iceman and Angel, Angel kind of lost, a, he doesn't have as much of a role in the story because Bobby has all of the personality, jokey, funny things and the visual power He's, stuff. Yeah, that got the, the human direct correlation. Right. right. And so the, I think it's interesting that you mentioned before that Jean, who is introduced shortly after this, is kind of our POV character. Mm -hmm. Establishing the team before our POV character is something that I don't see a lot, but I really enjoy the idea of. Because yeah. Because you get to have like this is... Instead of starting with her walking into the mansion yeah. and then she witnesses all of this... The readers see all of this, and then the boys start kind of squabbling with each other, and Professor Xavier interrupts them aloud yes. to say, Which means it's serious. You may be interested to learn that at this very moment <laughs> I sense a taxi approaching our main gate. Within that vehicle is a new pupil, a most attractive young lady. And <laughs> that is when Jean has arrived. I love Jean's outfit here. There yes. was a great bit in uh, Judgment Day where we see her in this outfit in like a flashback to this yeah. scene. And it's just funny because in the sliding time scale, we now have to assume that Jean was really into like the swing revival yeah. of the nineties or whatever. It's really like, into mod fashion, you know, right. for sure. <laughs> because <laughs> it's like kind of, a, well, it's not even a mod outfit really. Like it's kind of, a, it's more of like a fifties look. And yeah, I think that's on purpose. Right. It's kind of uh, more communicator old fashioned. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, like, as opposed to a character like Candy Southern introduced later, who's definitely like a swing in sixties chick. For sure. Uh, Jean is more like Gwen Stacy. Whereas mm -hmm. like Mary Jane is like the swing in sixties chick like that. Right. It's, it's sort of a, there's always an interesting contrast. Jean is much more buttoned up. I mean, like literally mm -hmm. she's buttoned all the way all up, the but way to the top. it's very fashionable. It's yes. like, it's not out of style. It's just, it's conservative fashionable rather than like hip fashionable. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of, yeah, but like not even it's, it's more just like she's respectable. Mm -hmm. Like the second she walks in, you know that this is a good girl in mm -hmm. the in the parlance of the time. She's right. not, you know, um, even a the rabble rouser is yeah. like even Janet Van Dyne is much more of like a mod fashion, like feminist miniskirts kind of person. Yeah, because the miniskirt was feminist back then, guys. It's complicated. <laughs> Look, this is not a, a first wave feminism podcast, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, but, th but that is important because later when Jean designs her own costume, she yes. does, this is 
people argue a lot about that green dress. But at the time that that costume was created, it was the most cutting edge and sexy fashion that she could be possibly wearing. And she does it herself. And it's a statement of agency over her own body. So it's, you know, I don't know. It's complicated. This is the problem with characters (laughs) who don't age for 60 years, right? Or who only age roughly 10 to 15 years over 60 years. Um, we also do yes. get in this page maybe the most repeated panel that I see nowadays on Twitter. It's everybody fawning out the window over her and Bobby yes. stepping well, out Bobby of the panel. stepping away. Because, yeah, so Scott says, you're right, sir. Wow, she's a real living doll. And Warren says, a redhead, look at that face and the rest of her. And Hank says, all of a sudden, I'm in no hurry to graduate from this place. And then Bobby, who is just a boot. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing that's still on panel is walking off and says, a girl, big deal. I'm glad I'm not a wolf like you guys. <laughs> and yeah, like he's gay. Yeah. He's gay. Makes all the sense like, in the world. Stanley wasn't sh- like shocked. He was just surprised. It was like he was learning this about someone he went to school with back in the day. Yep. Like it was, oh, he had really? such a curious action of like, oh, I, no really? I didn't know that. Good for him. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's because it's always kind of there. And I think the intention here was that he's younger. So he's not as girl crazy as Scott and Warren are 17. Hank is 18. But it's just it comes across a certain way now, certainly. And it's very hindsight. I mean, my dad points out like he's like, I always thought he was pretty gay because of that scene with Polaris. (laughs) <laughs> much later on yes. where she takes a shower at his apartment and he leaves before she yeah. comes out in the road. I mean, she comes out in the road, but then he's like, he's gone. Yeah. Like, you know, and he's like, you have to understand son that in any movie that came out when I was a boy, <laughs> a scene where a woman takes a shower and then walks out in a bathrobe is like the most risque. Yeah. Horny thing anyone had ever seen. <laughs> so, and Bobby just like, gotta go. Uh, <laughs> we, but, all the signs were there all the signs were there it's the most natural outgrowth in terms of unintentional because like, I would say Rachel Summers being a lesbian now is similar but Chris yes. Claremont always meant for that to be the case so right. uh, but in this case where it's just completely unconscious I do think that the signifiers that were dropped even here in the 60s were so easy for people to pick up. And that's why even by the 80s and 90s, you have writers playing with that long before Bendis was allowed to do it. I mean, Emma Frost basically calls him the F slur and like tells him to like maybe take up interior decorating instead of superheroing. It's like very funny. And I mean, she's Um, been inside his head. So she Well, it's uh, after she's in his head. Yeah, she doesn't, you know, and when I say she calls him the slur, I I mean, like affectionately because Emma's one of the girls, you know, but she gets it. (laughs) But like, she's basically like, Mr. Drake, until you acknowledge who you really are, you're never going to master your Omega level power or whatever. So um, we both know what I'm talking about, you know, so uh, I don't need to say it because we both need to say it because I can't because they won't let Scott Lobdell say it right now. But there's also in in the Onslaught saga, there's a moment where he's like, Gene, you know what I'm trying to say? Can't you just read it in my head? And I assume that's what Bendis was homaging when he has that scene happen later and he has her just blatantly out him to everybody see i object to that characterization and i'm not a big gene defender i'm very but i love gene but i'm like very hard on gene which gets the gene fans mad at me sometimes but 
uh, it, I do think that's unfair because people pull those panels out of context. Gene does not out Bobby. Gene right. pulls Bobby aside and outs Bobby to himself, which doesn't yeah. count. She's just like, <laughs> hey, so like I have uncontrollable telepathy right now. What's going on with you? Because like you're gay, though. And but he, she does pointedly take him away and out of earshot from the rest right. of the group. Um, and I think that that's good allyship personally i mean i'm certainly not the only gay man who as a teenager needed a female friend to pull me aside and be like so what's going on with you before i like <laughs> really you know felt comfortable yeah um anyway i digress but so yes. jean's in jean's here she's got uh, her powers she's a telekinetic only yes at this point. she demonstrates her telekinesis because all the boys are flirting with her and are trying to be chivalrous scott pulls a chair over uh and she is like oh there'll be no need for that and yanks the chair toward herself with her telekinesis which she explains is her power um, i also love scott's face after the chair gets pulled and it's yes. just the slack jaw. Uh? Oh. <laughs> uh, and one thing that's interesting here, this is there's a, a Tumblr account that I've seen. I don't use Tumblr anymore because I'm old now. But uh, I mean, I, the, actually, the last time I ever logged into Tumblr was in 2015. I logged on and wrote Iceman is gay, LMAO. And that's the last <laughs> post I ever made on Tumblr. Um, but the... Uh, in this case, it's funny because one of the things that that one of the blogs that I've seen on that site that's really cool is called Kirby. I forget exactly. It's like Kirby without the words, basically. It's like Kirby minus Stanley, essentially, yeah. is what it is. Because the way that Kirby maps out the scenes with Marvel Girl and Invisible Girl come across very differently without the speech bubbles mm -hmm. and we know that Kirby drew them without the speech bubbles or without any dialogue to work with and right. that Stan then added the dialogue so in this scene for example like you have the chair thing and then you have Hank come up to Jean and get like sort of physically flirtatious yeah. with her in a way that's gross and she immediately telekinetically zaps him up to the ceiling and it's not until he apologizes that she lets him fall back down onto the couch. But then the very next panel, she's she's like patting her hat back down. She says, I hope I wasn't too rough on the poor dear. Like <laughs> Lee pulls it back a little yeah. bit. And he does that with Sue a lot too. Like Sue is much more, oh no, I'm just a girl. I can't possibly <laughs> like, you know, in a way that doesn't quite fit like yeah, what's being drawn. And that's just an interesting push and pull of two creators here, particularly in the 60s. This is 1963. Yeah. Women's lib is like a hot topic. <laughs> it is sort of a new idea to a lot of men, right? So right. Um, you get the vibe that Kirby, who famously was obsessed with his wife yes. and based Big Barda on her, uh, you know, he's into, again, the Claremont vibe is something <laughs> that I think Claremont perfects, but there's bits of it that are here from the beginning. Absolutely. Uh, and Jean being a no-nonsense kind of girl who's not going to let these boys get fresh is part of that. Um, and it's fun. Another thing that's interesting here is that uh, in this issue, Jean and the professor are meeting for the first time. Claremont mm -hmm. will later retcon that the professor worked with Jean when she was young mm -hmm. um, and that he blocked off her telepathy to protect her because of a traumatic experience she had and this and that, but that's all stuff that's added later. In this first issue, it's presented as though she's never met him before. 
Right. And he also, I mean, he talks about how, you know, a childhood accident rendered me unable to use my right, legs. Right, which even like five issues later is not true Completely because we find different. out that it's after he served in Korea that he got paralyzed. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where they just they're just throwing stuff out there. Yep. Uh, he also explains he oh, another one is he thinks he's he says I might be the he's I'm a mutant. I might be the very first. Oh, like yes. he, yeah. He knows for a fact that he's not in later yeah. stories because at the very least he knows Amal Farouk was mm -hmm. a mutant. He knows that Magneto was a mutant. So uh, I mean after Hickman he knows that Moira McTaggart is a mutant. So, oh for sure. Uh, and they're all all of those characters are a little bit older than him. So yeah. you know I I think. Uh, um, I mean, Moira is about his age, roughly, but you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, it's just funny. He also explains that it's because his parents worked on the A bomb. Mm -hmm. So that's a theme that will recur. Like we find out yeah. that Hank's father worked at a nuclear power plant. We find out that Jean, um, I forget exactly. Her parents are at Bard College, but like, where is? Um, where is that nuclear power plant? The one near Westchester. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, Indian Point. When did that open? Indian Point. Because we did nuclear meltdown drills when I was in school mm. because of Indian Point being nearby. It's in Buchanan in Westchester. Yeah, okay. it was it, it was um commissioned in 1962, but construction began on it in 56. Okay. So I think that there's like a notion that maybe she was you know barred is a little further upstate but like yeah. who knows you know and and so we get that repeated idea that it's because of exposure to radiation and that recurs throughout the 60s lorna acquires her magnetic right. powers after mesmeros zaps her full of radiation yeah. before that she just has the green hair yeah. uh, and lots of attempts have been made to soft retcon these things <laughs> i mean one of the most Obvious. I mentioned the Black Womb Project earlier, but like over right. time, they've made Charles's father eviler and evil, much like Charles himself, of like course. a more complicated figure. And so now it's like, well, Mr. Sinister was experimenting on Charles as like a five-year-old because <laughs> his father was working for Mr. Sinister. So like that, you know, but that's that's after many years of 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 retconning and whatnot. But again, yeah. it's interesting that like that's where the Judaism metaphor falls down is like, you know, like that's where the minority allegory here is different because in this case, mutation is like a birth defect, right? right. It's like something that happens because your parents were exposed to a toxic element, a radioactive element. Whereas even as early as the Proteus saga in Claremont, it's very clearly something that's like genetically predestined. Yeah. And so that makes it much more like an ethnic heritage or like theories about being gay, which is why Claremont leaned into that in the eighties. Right. Um, but, you know, once you have that element involved, like that's when it can become sort of about black civil rights and about passing. Right. Because yeah. then it's like, Oh, somewhere in your DNA is this minority gene, even if you don't look it or whatever, right. you know, and then it can become something a little more substantive, but the radiation thing doesn't quite work. And it goes through the whole sixties, like Sunfire's powers yes. come from Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. His parents were exposed to the radiation of Hiroshima. So 
you know, it's it continues. That's and that's the second to last issue of the '60s X. Not quite. Yeah. It's the third to last. Something like that. It's like yeah. way. It's in the '60s. Uh, so and I don't mean the the decade. I mean the the issue numbers. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so because <laughs> the second to last is the really crazy one with the Xanox. Yes. Where where Xavier comes back. Um, the Silver Age is just not really my wheelhouse, so I don't have the numbers. <laughs> anyway, uh, Xavier explains to them that the evil mutants must be stopped, uh, even though, as far as he knows, they haven't emerged yet, but he believes that soon they will. And we cut immediately to Magneto. Who's just being a little menace. He's, and he's, he's just evil. Even... Like, Magneto is... Yeah. The problem with 60s Magneto is that he's just low-rent Doctor Doom. Yes! Right? Like, he's Doctor Doom, but not as interesting. Yep. His design is really good. Oh, like, 100%. They've stuck with it for 60 years, for the most part, because it's really good. Yep. But character-wise, he doesn't have much going for him. He's kind of a combo of Doctor Doom and the Red Skull, right? Yeah. Because he's also obsessed with a sort of, he, he sees the mutants as a Nazi-style Ubermensch. Yep. And so that's what's kind of, like, this is where the tension between Claremont and Morrison happens, right? Because Claremont reframes Magneto as a Holocaust survivor who responded to his own oppression by becoming a supremacist. I mean, yep. he, Claremont based his Magneto on Menachem Begin, the Zionist, mm. the right-wing Zionist. So, like, there's a lot of complicated political yeah. stuff there that this is not the podcast to get into, but Magneto becoming more moderate over the course of the 80s was meant to reflect Begin becoming more moderate over the course of the foundation and establishment of Israel. Right. Um, so, there's just a lot, and, and Claremont as a Jew was personally opposed to Zionism. So like, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there because he clearly identifies very strongly with Magneto and yeah. yada, 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 yada. So anyway, not, not super relevant, but here, the reason I point that out is because these Jewish writer artists to hit, to them, he's Hitler basically. Yes. And that continues throughout the sixties. And that's why it's so difficult to make the sixties Magneto work with the Claremont and afterward Magneto, which is the Magneto that most people like. Yes. So when Morrison, well, first in the 90s, editorial made them make Magneto a bad guy again. And mm -hmm. it feels very artificial if you read it now, because it's yeah. like the last thing Claremont does in his way out. And he does it in a way where you can tell, it's much like Madeline Pryor, you can tell he's not happy about doing it. Right. <laughs> um, and then it, but then when Grant Morrison pushed it all the way and like leaned into the Hitler stuff from the 60s, mm -hmm. a lot of people were offended because by that point, Magneto is this famous Holocaust survivor. But right. to Grant Morrison, whose parents were anti-nuclear activists and anti-fascists, Grant Morrison is approaching this from a very different perspective yes. of like the Silver Age Magneto is a fascist mutant supremacist like right. that's you know so it's a very different it's a very different take and here he mostly just monologues he does all sorts of things that uh do not make any sense because magnets no. can do anything and that's remained consistent to the present like yes what what can magneto <laughs> and polaris do whatever the plot requires them to do because magnets will do it whatever they need I, I, yeah. I do love that his first introduction is just oh they're launching a rocket I'm just gonna make it wobble and drop I'm in the ocean for a little it. bit yeah exactly. like it's nothing like outwardly like I'm going to ruin the world it's like ah, I'm doing little pranks on the US government I love when he makes over Cape Citadel the dust well, particles surrender the, in, <laughs> like into face. Wizard of Oz yeah. literally, like surrender Dorothy it says surrender the base or I'll take it by force and then it's signed Magneto in, in a really fun nice little, little cursive script. yeah, yeah. 
but everything else is very i will uh, say like the from the jump magneto super gay way before claremont <laughs> yes. like he has but in that in not again not intentional but like in yeah. that like campy vincent price villain kind yes, of way 100%. you know but like of course vincent price was secretly gay like that's the, yeah. that's the thing about all those characters oh, vincent price would have cut a fantastic <laughs> magneto oh he would have been great but and so uh, he's basically going in there and he's, he's menacing these all of missiles these and menacing all these soldiers and he... he's got a fun little magnetic barrier that he's got around bouncing people off of him that living fence as you call it is the symbol of my great power it is a mighty shield of magnetic energy <laughs> and basically he just says magnetic about things and it's like about it's fine. i mean in another 60s issue he uses magnetism to astral project and speak yeah. to charles xavier so like it's just you know magnets they just do whatever um but then charles does the same thing in the very you know almost in the next scene we see I was gonna jean well, gets yeah so outfit. first we get jean's moment where she puts the uniform on mm, whoever designed this uniform could have given christian dior a run for his money so that's again establishing her interest in fashion right. and the fact that she is like socially hip in a yeah. way that these weirdo boys apart from warren are not <laughs> And that's part of why she's initially attracted to Warren before she yeah. realizes that actually Scott is the one that she wants. Um, Cause it takes Scott a long time to like speak to her. Yeah. <laughs> I do love how anytime that she's involved, he's always in the background. Lurking like, yeah. oh, if only I could, this is why the thought bubbles are so key. Like if yes. only I could explain my feelings. <laughs> um, but so all the boys are spying on her as she looks at herself in the mirror and she turns on them like, what the hell can a girl have any privacy around here but before they can banter any further the professor summons them all and he that's when he starts talking to them aloud and warren says you're speaking aloud that means it's important and he explains <laughs> that the first of the evil mutants has emerged and at cape citadel this will now be your baptism of fire. You must go there and defeat him. So they all spring into action. We see how Bobby ices up. We see the for the first time the incredibly erotic sight of Warren Worthington unstrapping his wings yep. from the harness that he wears under his clothes, which does not make any sense, but you no. just have to go with it. Like they would they just wouldn't fit, but it's <laughs> no, fine. Clearly we not. Just, and, and I love fine. Bobby's Yabo. That's yes. his 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 cry of Yabo! Action at Yabo, last! Action gangway! Last, gangway! <laughs> I can get ready. In the, I can get ready faster than the rest of you. All I have to do is ice up and put on my boots. Um, but yeah, so they all get in, and then it's super funny because for some reason they all get like I, I, later stories like the X Jet or the Blackbird or whatever, starting in the seventies, will just yeah. like come out of a Bat Cave style like thing in the sub basement of the mansion. Yeah. But here they all pack take into a car. Professor Xavier's Rolls Royce, and the funniest thing is like they've never seen it before apparently i guess because he's never sent them on a mission yet because yeah. bobby goes boy must have taken a heap of green stamps to buy a chariot like this um but so then they all get into a private jet because they get to the airport and it's explained that professor xavier flies the plane from the ground using thought impulses that's not how that, any of it ever no. works again but like <laughs> that that's just simply not a thing if that were a thing, Gene wouldn't have had to be in that front compartment during nope. the Phoenix saga. So, <laughs> you know, that would have really solved a lot of problems if thought impulses could have brought that spacecraft down. <laughs> they arrive and the uh, the army is firing upon this magnetic barrier. And they're basically like, we don't know what's going on here. And Scott just rolls up 
full costume and says, with with due respect, General, I represent the X-Men. Perhaps we can help. And everyone's like, what the fuck are the X-Men? Yeah, (laughs) look, we're having enough trouble with one guy in a cornball costume. Now, who are one of the X-Men? No time to explain, sir. I respectfully request you to hold your fire for 15 minutes while my partners and I go into action. All right, we got nothing to lose, but I feel like a dang fool. You won't regret it, sir. X-Men, attack! And then everybody and just jumps in. that is not a catchphrase that catches on. <laughs> yeah. It's clearly an attempt at like an Avengers Assemble, X-Men yeah. attack, but it just doesn't, doesn't hit. It's no uh, to me, my X-Men. Well, and we'll get there because the fun thing about To Me, My X-Men is it's not something ever set on page until the 90s. Yeah. Um, but it comes from this issue, sort of, and we'll get there at the very end. <laughs> so uh, anyway, they all rush through and we see them all using their powers again to get past the soldiers. Uh, Warren flies. Uh, Hank Beast is frogs. super rude. To, yeah, to not as rude as Jean, though, who just oh, runs yeah, through and lifts true. them all telekinetically over her head as she does. Uh, <laughs> Bobby freezes them uh, by accident. And they're all like, oh, my God, it's so cold. And he's like, sorry, fellas. Uh, but anyway, it does come down to Scott, who overloads his optic blast to full power. Enveloping his head. To, yeah, which is cool. And like an effect that I wish they used more. It doesn't Same. really get used beyond these first earliest stories because it really makes him look like a cyclops right yeah. like in that moment like it's that's very, a good like, pull you yeah, know? yeah yeah um but so he blasts through the energy field and that causes feedback to magneto which is also not really something no. we get much of in the future with psychic powers you get a lot of that where yeah. like if you know if xavier's having a duel on the astral plane or like if betsy's using her psi knife and someone disrupts it she goes like ah, or whatever you know like gene oh no like fainting in the cartoon <laughs> all the time um, but it's not as common with like energy powers like this. Yeah. Um, but so the X-Men charge in and they fight Magneto. Uh, five costumed youths. Surely all their powers put together can be no match for mine. But just in case he fires interceptor missiles at them. <laughs> you know, so, the, 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 the correct, I guess, response. Yeah. And so Warren is doing evasive maneuvers, but they're homing missiles. So they're tracking him and... Bobby manages to shut down the heat tracking sensors with the ice, which is a, like, again, it's 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 much like Human Torch. Like they find a way yeah. for this elemental power to matter in the story. And Iceman is probably the most like broadly useful member of yes. this team. Um, and, and the only reason he doesn't stick around is because anything he can do, Storm can do better in the 70s. Right. Like, she can do snow and everything else. So it's yeah. like, well, sorry. <laughs> That's why Warren goes away, too, because she can fly plus all this other stuff. So, like, yep. what are you doing here, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's one missile which doesn't get frozen. So uh, Warren is still flying around. And Hank is able to do, like, a loop-de-loop <laughs> flip on a piece of rebar and grab it with his feet. And then Gene is able to snatch it from him telekinetically and crash it into the ocean. Magneto is furious. (laughs) We get another X-Men attack, this time from Warren, actually, which is interesting. Like this this issue hasn't established Scott as like the leader yet. That happens a couple issues from now when like they, you know, graduate to the field or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and uh, Magneto just traps Warren in a bunch of metal objects, but Scott is able to just blast them and they all fly apart, which again is not really how his power <laughs> works in the future, but it's fine. Well, you know, fr from what I understand, the punch dimension, you know, messes with yes, magnetism. Yes, we haven't established the punch dimension yet. <laughs> and also famously in an early issue of 60s X-Men, Scott uses his eye beams to cut a cake with mm -hmm. like heat vision a la Superman, which is not how his eye beam, like it should just blast the cake into the yeah. next room. Uh, so they're still figuring out how they work at this stage. <laughs> um, Magneto just kind of, it's a really funny panel because just the way he's drawn, he looks kind of chunky, like an out yeah. of shape. I say <laughs> this as someone who needs to hit the gym myself right now, but I'm just saying like, he just looks kind of like an old guy, like, whoa, like a thing of It reminds me of the, uh, the Lex Luthor stole 50 cakes. Sure, but thing. like he looks he looks like Danny DeVito though in this panel to me. Like it's just not very Danny DeVito menacing. as Magneto. It's not very menacing. Um, but Iceman manages to shield them all with an ice shield. So the explosion happens, Magneto thinks they're dead, but they're not. Uh they all come back because Cyclops managed to burn a tunnel beneath them into the earth with his optic blast. Again, not something not his optic quite. blast typically does in the future, but it's fine. Yeah. And uh they managed to defeat Magneto until he shows them that he can fly by means of magnetic repulsion and creates another force field and flies away by the time they cut through it. Uh, and they're all like, well, okay, at least we've beaten him for now. Warren flies down to the general and says, your base is operational again, general. Magneto is gone. Uncanny. There you go. Your 15 minutes are not yet up. You call yourselves the X-Men? I will not ask you to reveal your true identities, but I promise you that before this day is over, the name X-Men will be the most honored in my command. And Warren says, thank you, sir. And should America's security ever again be threatened, the X-Men will be back. Which, like, again, like working for the U.S. government, which is just yep. very different from later X-Men stories. And then as the jet flies back, we get Professor Xavier's floating telepathic head as he says... Well done, students. You have justified all our long hours of training, all our sacrifices, all our dreams. And now return to me, my X-Men. Yeah. And that's where the phrase to me, my X-Men comes from. But it actually does not occur until Pete Wisdom is doing an impression of Professor Xavier in the 90s. And ah. then, so he's he's like, to me, my X-Men. And then, uh, in, and think of the Ellis run of Excalibur. And then Grant Morrison has Xavier say it, but it's actually Cassandra Nova in his yes. body. So it's not until like 2003 or something that Professor Xavier actually says the phrase, to me, my X-Men. But it does come out of return to me, my X-Men in this right. issue. Yeah, and that's really where the the issue ends. It's just, yeah, a, it's we'll see you, you have just, issue two. You have just finished the newest, most unusual tale in the annals of modern magazines. But the best is yet to come. For fantasy at its greatest, don't miss issue two of X-Men, the strangest superheroes of all. Thank you, and Stan. They... Um, take us out, you know. <laughs> and they just, they fly off into the sunset, essentially. And that, again, sets the foundation for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Who is more or less showed up over the last 60 years like we would see these characters grow and change and 
become sometimes the best versions of themselves, sometimes the worst versions of themselves. Actually, oftentimes the worst Often version the of worst. themselves. Well, but because that's the, well, that's. I mean, superhero <laughs> characters are made to suffer, right? Like, yes. they, it's an ongoing narrative that never ends. If they're happy, the story's over. Yeah, uh, that's why Scott's happy marriage to Madeline was supposed to be the end of that character, yep. and that's why when editorial said you got to bring back Cyclops and get rid of the family, things they're went like, awry. Right. Like, you you're know, you're leaving your wife and child. All right, going I off guess to be he's mutant. got to abandoned his family to get back with his high school girlfriend okay i guess we'll just write it that way but yeah his um, best moment but no (laughs) i would say his worst (laughs) moment in fact Um, definitely one of the few but uh but uh one of the few worst one of the few worst right right, sure yeah no i get you (laughs) he's had many Um, worse moments yeah yeah yeah. i was like "Mm, he's got some bad ones (laughs) and i i like it i he he morrison actually turned me around on that character because morrison wrote him as a really fucked up guy who cheats on yes. his wife. And I was like, yes. I'm like, that's what I've been saying. You know what well, I mean? Like, and, and it's interesting and so because- leaning into it and then having him be like, yeah, I am a piece of shit, but like, I yeah. need to lead this team and I need to be a hero. So let me try to be less of a piece of shit and like work through it on the page really brought me back around on that character in a, right. in a big way. Um, but yeah, so, you know, that that is it, it is, it does set up a foundation of like, a telepath sends the team on a mission. The team gets in the X jet and flies somewhere. They fight bad guys and then they fly back to the mansion, which is the basic X-Men plot. Uh, But so many things about it are different as we illustrated earlier. At the same time, there are certain things that are consistent. I think that Jean is a much more active female character than either uh, Sue Storm or Janet Van Dyne were at this Mm -hmm. stage. Like they, they both take leaps and bounds over time. I like both those characters a lot. But uh, I think that Gene from the get-go here is already sort of a more assertive and um, feminist, like as in terms of personality character. She's like very much like, back away, boys, whereas Sue and Janet are very much the girlfriend of another character from their introduction. Because having them kind Um, of intrinsically linked to a male character Right, she comes in as a total stranger to all of them and has no interest in their flirtations, which I think is really interesting. Uh, And, you know, she's already pretty powerful from the jump. Right. So there's, you can see why, like, Claremont was enraptured with Jean as a kid reading it and then as an intern working on it toward the end of the run in the late 60s and then as a 25 year old when he was given the book after giant size the first thing he did was bring back Jean Grey and make her the most powerful character at Marvel (laughs) Comics and that is Claremont to the core but it is born I think out of this first issue making her such a dynamic and powerful character right out the gate even as Marvel Girl. Well, and everybody, I think, has gotten more or less like a gigantic power boost since then. Except oh, since maybe, this? Yeah. Maybe Beast, like in his like well, main... Well, he, he, he got blue and got claws and got yeah. all... Like, he's, he's, he's way... He's powered up too. Iceman has had the most, you know, because like Gene, yeah. he's established as like the limitless, eventually it's defined as anything. Omega level yeah. mutant. Yeah. Um, but and then Warren obviously gets all the Archangel stuff in the eighties that made him a much more viable. Like I love Warren as just Angel, but I do understand like what if we gave him gun wings that shoot at people? <laughs> like it does make him a more useful character yeah. than because once you have several characters who can fly, like Storm and then Rogue, and you know it's like well, 
mean, like Banshee has to scream to do it, but he can also shoot sonic blasts. So like that's again, Sunfire can fly and shoot fire. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where you're like, mm, gotta have something else. And I do think that um I do think that that is is a problem that all of these characters struggled with a little bit is being 60s characters and apart from G like even Scott his power is so basic yeah that as more complicated mutants get introduced it tends to overshadow those characters a little bit and But what I do just- like about Scott in that way is that he's they're they're able to get more creative with him well, that's In the this. thing is like yeah. the, what what proves that Scott is a good leader is that he has the most basic like Legion of Superheroes style power. <laughs> yeah, like he's eye blasting so lad, right? Yeah. And, but it's that doesn't affect. It's the same thing that Claremont does by depowering Storm after right? he makes her the leader of the X-Men to say she's not the leader because she has these godlike powers she's the leader because of who she is inside he does it in new mutants also with mirage who is the least powerful of them at the beginning of the story because initially she can't make physical illusions or any weapons or anything it's just like she makes like mastermind like things that scare you or whatever right um but she's the most tenacious she's the one who's more of a survivor she's the one who has that you know, go get him kind of attitude. And and he emphasizes that that is, and in the 60s series, they do that with Scott very successfully. Oh, like sure. they make you believe that he should be the leader, even though Hank is smarter, even though Bobby and Gene are more powerful than him. Like you believe even that Charles prettier. picking Scott. Yeah, you believe, and, and Rich and all that. <laughs> like, you believe that Charles picking Scott makes sense yeah. um, because of his temperament. Absolutely. And I think you see a dramatic shift over the years for Magneto as well. Cause like yes. you said, he's he's low rent uh, Dr. Doom in this, but he becomes a much more nuanced, a much more interesting character. And not just that, he gets some sizable power boosts. Oh yeah, over the oh, years. yeah absolutely. I mean, he's another one who's established eventually as a limitless Omega yeah. level mutant, right? So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting stuff here, even if the characters are somewhat unrecognizable. Yeah. Certain elements of them and certain themes are recognizable enough that it does feel like something is created here that then can be built upon. I mean, like Lee and Kirby were well aware that like X-Men was not their best stuff. They didn't write it for very long. They handed it off to other people. Um, But it's there's something there's a kernel here. I mean, the 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 way that it's positioned here as the good respectable mutants versus the evil mutants is the most interesting thing to me just because of how much the Krakoan age has been like, wait, 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 I get that. (laughs) And some mutants are bad people. But if we all like forgive each other and try to come together, maybe we can build something. Right. Um, And that is, you know, that's some really interesting modern political take on minority politics to be. But yeah, it's very I mean, it's just very different from how people thought of it in the 60s. And I mean, in some respects, it's very different of how people view things now. Like Absolutely. it was still a, it's, it's oh, still it's a revolutionary a, I mean, concept. And it's provocative. And yes. there's a reason why a lot of people, I mean, I think it's like, it's polarizing, but so was Grant Morrison's run. Right. I think that the innovative runs of X-Men, I mean, what people don't realize now is that Claremont's X-Men was enormously polarizing yeah. at first and then became like Kitty Pride was a wildly polarizing character. Storm becoming the leader of the X-Men was enormous. You read mm-hmm. those letter columns and like people were not 
happy with a lot of the stuff that Chris yeah. Claremont was doing. I mean, people thought the Outback team, even before, like the Mutant Massacre era team, the, at the beginning of Fall of the Mutants, there are those like mm-hmm. little boys who taunt Colossus is yes. drawing the X-Men or whatever. The and they're like, thing. they're not the X-Men anymore. It's just a bunch of girls. And like, that's because that's Chris responding to the letters column. Mm-hmm. Because people were like, I don't like Psylocke. She's a fucking bitch. And he was like, yeah, she's interesting. She's not yeah. nice. That's the point. Like, you know, like She's meant like, to be a foil. She's meant to be complicated because she's the new telepath and she's not nice like Jean was, you know, like that's yeah. called having characters who are different from each other. But, you know, whatever. Um, what do I know? I'm just a writer. Yeah. What do I know? I just created all these characters, you dumb fucks. <laughs> So, he was always very polite in the letters column, but you oh, can, yes. you can, but in the story you can see him being like, "Shut it. the fuck up!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which I love. I always love that kind of moment in the story. I do love when when comics creators are able to just kind of say, "Yeah, you know what? I'm just going to put the my. Re- I'm not going to say my response to you. I'm going to put it well, into the story, of, so you're forced to read it." Speaking of Betsy, I mean, she's Captain Britain now, and yes. in the in the Betsy Braddock Captain Britain series, go pick uh, it up. Which, it's I, wonderful. which is great. I love it so much. So good. Teeny is a close friend of mine, Teeny Howard, to be completely transparent, but we became good friends because I loved what she was doing with these characters. But this book is the best thing she's done yet. And I, uh, at Marvel anyway, I, I think her DC stuff is also fantastic. But yeah. um, this one, it just cracked me up because there's a scene where, uh, you know, Betsy's like, oh my God, yes, I'm Captain Britain. It's been years now. Yeah. Get over it. Yeah. And like, I, I, I also love whenever characters in a comic, like, because the comic time is never a hundred percent. It's like, has it been a couple weeks? Has it been a day? Is she just saying, look, I've been <laughs> Captain Britain since 2019. You yeah. got to get over it. You got to get over it. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. It's not, we're not <laughs> turning it back. We're not putting me back in the Asian woman's body. We're not having me be a ninja again. I'm Captain Britain. Deal with it. It's yep. just like, get over it. And she's saying it to Morgan <laughs> Le Fay, which makes it like extra funny. But, you yes. know, it's just, it, to me, it's just, I like little little winks like that where it's like, come on, guys. You know, um, <laughs> Ben Percy just had a really funny, like he's done it a couple of times now, but he has Deadpool like directly address the ex-spoilers hashtag sometimes, yes. which I think is really funny. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's just obviously. Oh, hashtag ex-spoilers you know, is going to hate this. I know, I know. <laughs> that was really funny. That was kind of a little bit of a shout out to uh, the Threnity episode that I did because he saw the TikTok <laughs> yes. uh, where Jordan Block just like breeds Hank to filth. Um, and so that yeah. was that was he he DM me he was like this is so this is so fu- I can't do a Ben person like, so he, he has a like, ridiculously is, deep voice like this is hilarious and I was like thank you Ben <laughs> that's All that's now my guess. Ben Percy voice that's that's now he, my Ben Percy you think voice. it's fake but then you talk to him for a couple hours which I did for my say uh not uh, say, uh, Omega Red yeah. episode. Uh, Saber Tooth was with Victor Laval, obviously. Um, but similarly, like Wolverine antagonist character, uh, the Omega Red episode that I did with him for for um, 10 Lives Next Deaths of Wolverine. Right. And he, he, I just sat there talking to him for hours and he just, that's just his voice. It's just, <laughs> he sounds like, I don't know what. I mean, yeah. it's what Wolverine sounds like now in my head. Oh, for sure. Well, and and you like, know? it's funny because like I, I did a, uh, we, we, on the podcast did an interview with Jason Aaron last year. And mm. I don't know what I expected him to sound like, but very just like low Southern drawl. Like, yeah. And I just, I Jonathan Hickman is so Southern. That always is he really, me. he's from South Carolina. That makes sense. Yeah. He'll just yeah, be talking it's... about the X-Men. Yeah. Like, wow. 
<laughs> you know, like that's just I just didn't expect that. My favorite was some one of my listeners was like, I had no idea Kieran Gillen was British. And I was like, have you read anything he's ever anything written? But like, out. you know, I guess yeah. people just don't imagine voices sometimes. Yeah. Um I think I still I had a conversation with somebody who wasn't aware that Grant Morrison was Scottish. And I mean that Scottish, I get that surprising people sometimes because to Americans at least it's like British plus or like, you know, like British plus. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like you, yeah. you're just, you don't expect, you're like, oh, wait, they're Scottish, right? Um, it sounds like a plug-in for language. Yeah, it's like, like yeah, a, just get it, British exactly. plus. It's like, a, it's an expansion pack. You can, you know you, what you I can mean? download that. Right? Exactly. It's like the Celtic <laughs> expansion pack for like the British. Just check out the packs. Google Play Store. The, the, You'll it, get it. It's like going from British to Welsh or Scottish. <laughs> you're like, mm, that's different. Um, I'm sorry, from, to, from English to Welsh or Scottish, I should say, yes. because it's all, it's all Britain, whether or not Scotland likes that. Uh, <laughs> TBD. We'll see. By the time you hear this, who knows? Who knows? Um, Things are changing wildly. Yeah. But as anyway, we're getting into the wrap up for this, all these characters established. It's been sixty years. Yeah. Out of these six characters, I want to ask you: Who do you think has had the best arc from then to now? Oh, Gene. Yeah. Without a doubt, Gene. I'm well. It's complicated because there's yes. a lot of mess in the middle, right? Right. But Gene from here through Dark Phoenix and then from Grant Morrison to now, like mm-hmm. I think it's Gene. Yeah, I don't I don't think any of the others really compare. I mean, I think Hank's for sure 90s to present descent into villainy has been mm-hmm. really, really strong. Um, I, I think an argument could be made as well for Magneto with him being but I so one I really don't think that this character is the same character. Like I, That's to me, fair. it's That's just, you fair. know, like it's yeah. not an arc. It's just that Claremont writes a different guy. <laughs> well, and I think <laughs> ever since Claremont too, like the the building blocks of Claremont and everything everyone has done after that as well, yeah, has also fleshed out and built this character. Yeah, but like in the '90s, like I said, like he has Magneto has a really messy arc because in the True. 90s they just make him a mwahaha villain like the 60s again like that's people fair. were mad at grant morrison but that's because a lot of them didn't read the really shitty late 90s comics with yes. like magneto war and all of that shit where yeah. he's truly like a fascist dictator yep. over genosha at that point so it when grant was starting to write magneto you know if you just read new x-men which a lot of people do because guess yeah. what don't read late 90s x-men it's bad but like the but people don't realize that it's building on like eve of destruction all these other storylines in which yeah. Magneto was super evil right so you know well, that's the whole I reason think... we had joseph our boy yes our good, our good friend joseph. we could like and who could date rogue <laughs> that was the point um but you know i i think that uh in general like he's like gene that way where like they have great storylines like, I, I think that Magneto's arc from Uncanny 150 up through X-Men Red number seven is yes. maybe the best arc in comics. But there's a really weird fallow period in the middle. Yeah. And in the same way with Jean, you have the period where editorial is insisting that she wasn't the Phoenix, which is so stupid. It's dumb. Because then all she has are the 60s comics, which frankly are not very good. Yeah. So it was like, well, what's the point? We brought back this character from a book that got canceled because nobody really liked it. Like, I, you know... <laughs> <laughs> where's the logic where's the like you oh so you're saying that the most popular marvel story of all, like it's that or the night gwen stacy died right yeah. like the most famous is it's dark phoenix or gwen stacy you're telling me that you're just gonna say that wasn't her it was just a space alien that we don't have to care about that's a space bird incredibly stupid yeah so claremont 
to his credit, the second he's back on the books in the late 90s, starts saying, nope, actually, Jeans Phoenix, like hinting <laughs> at it. And then Morrison just goes for it because yeah. Morrison was like, that's stupid. <laughs> like, <laughs> why wouldn't Jane be the Phoenix? That's fucking dumb. So, you know. Um, but and now we're in a great place where Kieran Gillen just wrote that judgment yes. day issue that was so, so good. good. That so one good. shot with Gene, where it was just like again, one no. of those definitive stamps of just like, yeah, no, it's this like, is no, how it is. You are the Phoenix, whether or not she it was has your to physical body, it was your psyche. You did this, you have to live with it. And if you can't deal with that, then you need to like it's like shit or get off the pot lady. Like yep. you got to like, like process it or don't. And now yeah. hilariously in Jerry's run, she's processing it by having sympathy for the brood because the yes. way that they describe, which is, but like, I get it. It's I, funny I get to me, it. But it's just so funny to me because it's like the brood, people are like, there's a lot of brood course right now going on about like whether it's moral to genocide the brood. Right. Yeah. Um, Scott, and, Scott did not come out of that looking very great. But I get where he's coming from. The brood, are an, the brood are an invasive species from another reality that reproduce exclusively by killing other sentient beings. It's xenomorphs. Like, yeah, like you, the xenomorphs from Alien, I'm sorry. I think it's okay to kill all those guys. I just do. And that's what the brood is. But I think it's very funny that when Scott, I mean, it's certainly supposed to make us question, right? Because Gene sure. says this is genocide. And Scott's like, that's ridiculous. But Gene brought it up. Yeah. So they want us to question it, right? Absolutely. But- the thing that's funniest to me is that the reason Gene gets so offended is because the way Scott describes the brood sounds exactly like Dark Phoenix. And then yeah. at the end of the issue, she says to brew the brood with empathy. But like the thing is, like the only he's like, it's like we can make a better brew only if brew mind controls them, because yep. the second he loses control of them, they just start killing indiscriminately again. So yeah. and I think there's that, only what, like six of them left. But after is that all better? That? I'm not confident that that's better if you have to mind control them. Then are Especially they putting this on a kid as well? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't care for that character, but that's another story. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> Listen, I'm not, I, I may be anti-brood, but I don't think that a man should be put in charge of the brood matriarchy. <laughs> I think that's fucked You're, up. You are not wrong. You're not wrong um, for that. I'm like, let women have things, even if that thing <laughs> is to parasitize and devour the universe. But anyway, uh, but like the, the brood literally also are not from this universe. They are from right. like an antimatter universe that is like literally parasitizing ours. So it's like the annihilation uh, wave. Yeah, exactly. They are like the annihilation wave. So they're the most inhuman example you could use of something to pose this question with. And yes. I think that's why it's interesting. But at the end of the issue, Gene's like, listen, if I can be an X-Man, even though Dark Phoenix happened, then we should be nice to the brood if they could be good. And it's just like so funny because it's just, you know, she's doing it for like moral reasons. It's very yes. Gene, right? Like at the end yeah. of the day, it's kind of about herself. Right. It, it could not Jean be more because, apples and oranges. Yeah. That it's <laughs> like one of these things is not like the other, Gene, yeah. but like, you know, it's, but I get it. I get why Scott being like, they're parasites. They don't deserve to exist. Has her like, hmm, I ate a star system once. Rude to say that. <laughs> like, so, I love it. I love it. And I'm excited to see where it takes them. I think Fall of Same. X, like their their relationship is going to go through it. But, yeah, you know, I, but I that. don't think, I mean, I think that that's good because since she came back and then he came back, we haven't really, like, they've just been back together. Right. 
when Grant Morrison did a great job of illustrating all of the flaws and cracks yeah. in their marriage. And now the Scott that Jean has come back to went through all of the decimation stuff while she Without was dead. Without her, yeah. And is a very different man now. And I think that seeing, the, I think they will, rem I think that they are like end game, obviously. For and I'm sure. a Scott, I'm a Scott and Emma partisan, but I always knew, Absolutely. I always knew that it was never not going to be forever. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm the same way with, with Gwen Stacy. I, I'm always a oh, Gwen Stacy really? Peter Parker guy, that's but I understand. To me, but I respect you. I'm, but I, I'm, but I'm I understand that that's not the end game. The core. That, that, I understand that that's not end game, and that's the same way. With oh, Scott that you Gene. understand that Gwen's not. Yeah, yes. no, I mean like that. But that's how I felt about. Uh, it's interesting because Jean comes first, and uh, right. with Emma, it's different, right? But yeah. Yes, I, I, I never thought for a second that Scott and Emma were going to be together forever. Um, and by the end of that relationship, I wanted her to dump him. So, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> they were not built to last, as much I as I like, love them. I was like, you know, not to be rude, but when Emma's, like, coming across a little super villainy here, bud, like, you know, <laughs> that's, consider the source, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, I do think Cyclops was right, but uh, that's Same. a whole other. Thank you. I mean, I'm sure you do, but I absolutely do. Uh, I thought Magneto was right too, though. So not in the '60s, to be clear. No, no. But, you know, um, <laughs> not in the but... '60s, and probably not in the Morrison era either. To be no, to be but honest. I mean, then we found out that wasn't him. So you know, because yeah. they they, re they retconned that out real <laughs> very quick. quickly. Uh, I still think that story is good, though. So, mm -hmm. you know, like unto itself, um, I get why it pisses people off. But, you know. And I, I still am waiting for Magneto and Scott to have the conversation about, hey, we were kind of on the same page for a little bit while you were like over here. And Had it during the Bendis era. No, um, but they were actively they working through. Well, I hope they the don't time. have it anytime soon because I think Magneto needs to stay dead for a good oh, long while. Hundred percent. After Al Ewing landed that plane so brilliantly, I just don't bring think, him uh, back frankly, until like twenty thirty. Like, I don't. I, frankly, if I never saw him again, I would feel great about that. Like I about that ending. Like not yeah, because oh, I don't. 100%. I love reading about Magneto, Same. but like I would be fine with that. But I was also I was fine with Jean Grey never coming back after New X Men. Yeah. After agreed. Here Comes Tomorrow, I thought that that was yeah. like the perfect ending the for perfect Jean. Sunset and I don't think they ever should have brought her back. But now that yeah. they have. And I get why they did, because like it's comics, you know, yeah. but now that they have, I do think that she and Scott need to figure out who they are now and how yep. that's different. She ascended to the white hot room. He became a revolutionary and yeah. a military leader like they're just very different people now. So I think this is a great way of illustrating that. And I'm sure that by the end of Fall of X, they will have come back together. But I like that they're right. having some some trouble now. But I like when couples fight. I like That's what I like I, about I Peter and Mary Jane in the 90s. Yeah. They argue all the time in a way that's really realistic. But you can tell that they really love each other. It's just, you know, couples argue. Absolutely. Well, and that's what I kind of loved about introducing, you know, Babel. Well, Baby Cable is yeah, that they, yeah. they have the opportunity to be parents to, to this be like a family kid. unit for real. Yeah. yeah. Outside of like the weird time travel Cyclops and Phoenix thing in the 90s, which <laughs> is fun, but very strange and very different strange. from like the leave it to beaver deconstruction that Jerry was doing in that book. Yes. Um, but that's the thing is Jerry's <laughs> written them as a very happy domestic couple. Yes. And now he's writing them going through trouble. And I think that yeah. that's cool to, to see him do both yeah I'm, I'm excited to see how that bleeds into fall of mutants and everything beyond that for sure yeah yeah so thank you so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure i knew we were going to have a, a conversation and i 
I I loved it. I loved Thank every second. Thank you for having me. We only went two hours for me. That's not really too good. bad. Not yeah. too bad. I'm I'm a chatter. I know you're a chatter. So well, every podcast I'm on, they they end up going at least a half an hour longer than their standard <laughs> episode. But uh, I I've been trying to rein it in. It's and and that's what that's what we love. We love to see growth. We love to see you know people <laughs> trying to be the best versions of themselves. <laughs> but. Um, for those of our listeners who want to follow up with you, who want to continue following the stuff that you've got, uh, where can they find you? Feel free to plug whatever you got. Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon, O-R-G-O-N-O-N, or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. It's not available on Twitter. Also, Twitter sucks now. So like, It sure does. Know, I mean, it's always sucked, but it actually <laughs> sucks now. Yeah. Um, you can follow Cerebro at Cerebrocast on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. I think that's it at the moment. Uh, you can buy merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Cerebro. Uh, I always shush, shush, shush when I start saying the <laughs> user slash Cerebro. Um, you can find all of the episodes plus a link to the Discord server, which is where I mostly hang out these days, social media wise, at Cerebrocast.com. Uh, the, for bonus content and add free episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash broadcast. It's only $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier. And uh, that is honestly my primary source of income at this point. So I appreciate everybody who kicks in. Uh, publishing is a rough business. I'll just say that. So I, it's nice I to have it. a paycheck I know is coming every month uh, as opposed to working on commission in books. But in any case, that's uh, that's sort of where you can find me. Uh, you can find more about my other work at connorgoldsmith.com. Uh, and that that's me, basically. We've got 100 episodes out now. Episode yeah. 101 will drop sometime this month in May, I think. Uh, it might be early June. It depends on like how all the scheduling works out. But uh, I'll be joined by Jonathan Hickman. We're yes. going to talk about Ugh. Apocalypse. I'm really excited. I'm stoked. I when you put the announcement out about that, I just I remember I texted uh, Malcolm, who's also a co-host for our book club, and we were just like, "This is gonna be the greatest conversation." Like we were. I'm psyched. As hell. I'm really excited. That yeah, this yeah, is yeah. this has been like a kind of a great white whale for me because he doesn't like doing interviews, but he's a really nice right. guy, and uh, I'm I'm really excited to have him on the show. Hell yeah! And I I said it before I was gonna gush, so I'm gonna gush for a second. Um, huge fan of Connor and Cerebro. I, f I first initially found Connor through uh, Patrick Willem's channel on an, on uh, an yeah. X-Men well, video that's way back where the show the came from. Yeah. Because Patrick, I, the comments on the YouTube videos, they kept saying like, you guys should do an X-Men podcast. And I kept saying to Patrick, well, I would if you want to. And finally he was like, Connor, you don't need me. Just do it yourself. And, uh, great, Patrick great, and I, pa great Patrick thank you impression um well, Patrick and I went to college together I've known him for 16 years so it's That's just awesome. one of those uh one of those things at this point but yeah a 17 god how long has it been now yeah 2006 17 years wow Oof. that's a long time to know somebody yeah well it's just, now... it's just old it's an old age to be <laughs> it's more like I just turned 35 and I know that's not like old old but it's certainly the oldest I've ever been so I'm like that's uh <laughs> Getting well, long in the tooth, but yeah, no, but thank you, thank you so much for listening. The yeah. community and fandom support for the show has been incredible. Um, it, it's a, it's know. a huge deal, and genuinely, like, I it makes me really happy that now in consecutive X maze, I've had you and Patrick on there, yeah, that's your great, video right? Was forming the video content. that had you 
formative for me as a as a creator and as a fan and some of your episodes are some of my favorite coverage of those characters the cyclops episode the conversation that you had with jay and going over some of the stuff that was coded in cyclops that i didn't realize Mm -hmm. was coded in him and made me appreciate the character it made me align with that character a lot more than I was expecting to. Sure. Well, it was a wake up for my dad, to yeah. be sure, who, you know, he had a lot of wake ups in his 50s about certain. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about Jay Edison's autism read on Cyclops. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's been a really rewarding experience. I love being able to bring on guests from a variety of different backgrounds to yeah. talk about their experiences and how they relate to the X-Men, because the beautiful thing about the messy and imperfect metaphor at the heart of X-Men is that it speaks to every experience of difference in different ways. And so, like, and there are other ways that fall short, but those are conversations that are worth having. Uh, and it's been really exciting to me to be able to foster those conversations and also to encourage analysis of these stories and this medium in kind of a more academic way it's it scratches that english class itch that i still have (laughs) all these many years later you know yeah absolutely and again huge thank you for coming on you're welcome back anytime i love thank you for having me you and um yeah here's to many many more episodes of cerebro congrats on 100 episodes and i can't wait for 100 more thanks so much uh same time next year i'll be back for x may works out for me My name is Barry Allen, and I am the fastest man alive. When I was a child, I saw my mother killed by something impossible. My father went to prison for her murder. Then an accident made me the impossible. To the outside world, I'm an ordinary forensic scientist. But secretly, I use my speed to fight crime and find others like me. And one day, I'll find who killed my mother and get justice for my father. I am the Flash. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And we are back to reviewing the final season of The Flash, specifically episode nine of season nine entitled It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To. Um, This was the right episode to come back for after a break, right? Because as we've pretty much known at this point with the end of the flash we are getting the end of the arrowverse as we know it and having a big episode that brings back several different characters i thought was a great way to continue the hype train as we head into these final 10 11 12 13 four episodes we are in the home stretch and as it's been stated i guess the uh the showrunner uh greg berlanti has mentioned that It's going to be a four-part finale, essentially. So the next four episodes comprise this four-part finale. So this was the last stop before we get into that. And what a last stop it was. Not just for Grant Gustin's Barry Allen, but also for Keenan Lonsdale's Wally West, for Peter Ramsey's uh, Jonathan Diggle, as well as Stephen Amell's Oliver Queen. 
Loved to see the return of Stephen Amell to the universe that he began. Um, it's It was really cool to see him. It does throw up some weird continuity things, but... I don't care. I just liked seeing him, and I liked seeing him in the Green Arrow suit again. Um, this episode also saw the return of Bloodwork. Always good to see Sendel Ramamurthy back in the fold here. I thought his season where he was a villain was actually, his storyline was actually really well done, and I wish they'd gotten more time to cook with it. And so getting him back here and making him a multiversal problem is a little bit cliche, but... I enjoyed it. I loved seeing him. Um, basically, the episode was about celebrating Barry's 30th birthday, which makes me the same age as Barry Allen. And it was a nice little celebration, bringing back certain characters. Uh, bringing back uh, Captain Singh was really cool to see him again. Um, but Bloodwork returns, uh, corrupts Wally. Uh, they gave Wally the white lightning, which I loved. I loved seeing him have the white lightning or silver lightning, whatever, that he has in the comics right now uh, or did have for a while. Um, it was just cool to see that. Uh, getting Diggle back and having him get the goodbye with Oliver that he didn't get during Crisis on Infinite Earths was really nice as well. Uh, it was just cool. It was nice seeing them. Uh, we got to see another little uh, Chester and Allegra scene, which is always welcome. I always dig seeing them and their little love story going on. Um, but it was really, it was all about Grant Gustin and Stephen Amell getting their goodbyes with each other, getting their last ride. Uh, the Arrowverse really spawned off of the two of them with Arrow, and then the very first spinoff was Flash. And so it's a little bittersweet, to think about like how Crisis on Infinite Earths in maybe the same way as Endgame was for the MCU was kind of the end for the Arrowverse. Like after that and when I don't want to I don't want to say like they dropped the ball, but the torch was passed from Arrow to Flash as the flagship. And after after that happened, we have seen a steady decline and a steady, you know, a slow and steady death of the Arrowverse, leaving only the Flash. The Flash is the last one left. Superman and Lois is its own universe, its own show. Um, but this universe, the Prime Earth, that's just Flash now. And so getting to see him, getting to see Stephen Amell come back to his baby, essentially, and get to do one last run with that character with this world was really nice we also got to see some trademark uh, arrow fight choreography which is always a treat really enjoyed seeing that again um and it was really it was really nice seeing wally you know keenan lonsdale hasn't done i would say a whole lot since leaving flash um he's done he's obviously done stuff he's still working but nothing as I guess, quote unquote, high profile as the flash. And it makes me really like watching him on this episode made me really bummed that we didn't get more of Wally throughout the show. You know, he was a main fixture for, you know, one and a half seasons and then he was gone. And so getting all of this development and stuff that we got basically off screen for him is kind of sad. And I wish we'd got to see more of it in the show it kind of made me feel like we really needed to see wally grow into the the flash 
for the show. I still think they should have had, you know, when Barry goes away, you know, into the Speed Force, I think it was at the end of three or four, Wally becomes the Flash for two seasons. Like, I don't know why they didn't do it. They could have. But either way, it is what it is. And seeing Keenan Lonsdale back, seeing Wally back was really nice. Um, he got to tussle with Barry for a little bit. He got, you know, turned into a blood brother, which I I love how hokey that is. Um, and we got to see everybody kind of corrupted. You know, Allegra and Chester had, you know, got this really sweet moment where Chester was giving her this, you know, really nice heirloom. And then she broke it as she was possessed. And then they got together back at the end after everybody was cured was nice. Uh, Keon apparently is tapped into the natural forces of the earth, not just like ice and stuff, though that's pretty much just giving her her ice powers back. But Oliver, as the Spectre, has mentioned in this episode that she is part of the natural forces of earth. So that might be something that comes into play later on. But overall, again, this was more of a goodbye for Stephen Amell to the franchise that was built off of his show. Like I said, he got a really nice goodbye with Diggle, which I loved. But then they did the thing that they didn't have to do. They could have just left it alone, but they were like, yeah, you not becoming Green Lantern was the right thing to do. And now you get to go off in the sunset. And I'm like, no, he could have flown off into the sunset via the Green Lantern ring. It's still a baffling choice that I will never understand. But I digress. Um, the final kind of post credit scene with Barry and Oliver was really nice, too. It was really just the two of them kind of sitting down and saying their goodbyes, both as characters and as actors. And I really enjoyed getting them together one last time. Um, it was just nice. It was nice. It was two guys who started something, you know, being there at the end. And I will always, always cherish that. So we are in the home stretch here. We've got four episodes left and they're apparently a four part finale. So as we go into this, we are going to be pretty much wrapping, you know, by the end of May, that'll be the end. That'll be the end of the Arrowverse. That'll be the end of the flash. So join me, won't you next week and every week after at least for the rest of this month as we continue to review the final season of The Flash. But for now, let's roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown for the week of May 3rd, 2023. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you pick up your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we get to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And you know... This one was tough because there were actually a few really good comics. More than a few, in fact. My uh, my wallet was not uh, was not pleased with me if we're if we're being being honest here. But the book that I ended up choosing, I think probably to the surprise of no one, was indeed Captain America: Symbol of Truth number twelve. This is Cold War. Part two in part two is 
amazing. Um, Cold War has been wonderful so far. The first two opening salvos have been awesome, and I can't wait to see where the story goes next. Also, a quick shout-out to Sins of Sinister Dominion taking the biggest swings. Uh, We talked earlier in the episode, Connor and I did, about how much Sins of Sinister kind of stands on its own and really surprised me near the end. I still don't know if I love it as a story, but I do think that they took some wild swings and those swings are going to be felt far, far after the conclusion of the story. So I loved both those books, but those are last week's books. This week we've got seven, count them, seven books for you to check out. So let's get this party started with Batman number 135. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Mikhail Janin. Mike Hawthorne and George Jimenez. And this is, I believe, the conclusion of the Batman of Gotham story, as well as a legacy issue, Legacy 900. So this is not just Batman 135. This is also Batman 900. Big, big landmark achievement for them. Let's dive into the synopsis. The Batman of Gotham, Part 5. It's Batman versus Red Mask in a brutal Gotham that's never known hope. Can the Dark Knight overcome the terrifying infection that Red Mask has unleashed? Only one thing is certain. He won't be able to do it alone. The conclusion to the best-selling The Batman of Gotham is so big it could only be contained in an oversized 900 anniversary issue featuring the return of fan-favorite artist George Jimenez, and a wild collection of guest stars. Full of wild revelations and a new path for Batman, this is one issue you don't want to miss. I'm really excited about that. I love that they are making this feel like a big deal, making this feel big time, and I can't wait to see what they've got in store for us. Next up, we've got Spider-Man, number eight. This is written by Dan Slott with art by Mark Bagley. And this is continuing on the Spider-Man run that these two Spider-Man legends began uh, just not even a year ago. So I'm really excited. I really enjoy the end of the Spider-Verse. I don't know where they're going next, which is kind of exciting. So let's find out here. Maxed Out, Part 1. Clear and Present Dangers. Spider-Man has changed. His powers are supercharged, enabling him to be the best Spider-Man he can be. But can his all-too-human body take it? A classic Spider-Villain is back and doesn't care if Spidey has his hands full. I am going to assume, with the lightning bolt maxed out and all that, we are getting some Electro! Max Dillon, of course, being the name of the villain. I'm looking forward to this. I have been really enjoying the book so far, and I'm excited to see where they go past the Spider-Verse. Next up, we have The Flash, number 798. This is written by Jeremy Adams, with art by Fernando Pazarin and Will Robeson. And... This is going to be harder and harder the further along we go. The closer we get to 800, the um, the more it's going to hurt. But I'm very excited to see what they've got in store for these next two issues before we get into, obviously, the big 800 being that big uh, anniversary landmark issue. Um, this one looks interesting. Let's dive into the synopsis. 
time heist. Tragedy befalls the West family, which uncovers a mystery that will take our favorite red-headed hero beyond time and space. Mr. Terrific joins Wally along with a few surprise guests to help him on a mission to save the Flash family. Time travel. Heists. I am in. Wally West. Mr. Terrific. Let's do this. Sounds really cool. Super into it. Next up, we have Immortal X-Men number 11. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Lucas Wernick. Sins of Sinister is over. Immoral X-Men is over. We are back to your regularly scheduled programming. However, the conclusion of Sins of Sinister means that this uh, this Immortal X-Men roster is very, very different. No spoilers if you didn't read it, but um, you might be surprised by what's going on in this book if you weren't reading Sins of Sinister. So I would say go check it out. It's good stuff. Let's dive into the synopsis. Part 11. Storm of Two Worlds. Sins of Sinister is over, but the Sins fallout remains. Storm can't believe what everyone has done, but when the fate of two worlds rests in her hands, what can she do about it? I'm going to assume a lot, because it's Storm. I am very much looking forward to seeing, kind of getting back on track and seeing where we go next as the fall of X looms in the distance. It's going to be real fun. Next up, Avengers, Avengers, Adventures of Superman, John Kent, number three. This is written by Tom Taylor with art by Clayton Henry. And I've been loving this book so far. I know this is only the third issue, but the first two issues were so good. I'm really excited to see how John fares on the world of injustice. I'm kind of sad that Val Zod and uh, Red Tornado Lois are kind of getting the shaft here and they are shunted off to somewhere else hopefully it's not the last we see of them but this is all going to be about john and his alternate father let's dive let's dig into this synopsis countdown to injustice chapter three the regime's paradise john kent arrives on a world he's never seen the world of injustice. While a Kal-El rules this world in seeming peace, why does everyone John meets fear the S symbol on his chest? And why is Batman public enemy number one? John has to pick a side, and the consequences make either choice a dangerous one. So this is really interesting, right? Because the Injustice comic that Tom Taylor also wrote is canon to those games. This has to be canon to those games. So where, oh where, in the timeline of the five years prior to the beginning of the game, during the run of the comic, does this take place? I'm very curious to see how uh, Tom Taylor squares that circle. This is going to be a wild ride. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Scarlet Witch, number five. This is written by Steve Orlando with art by Russell Dodderman. Very excited about this. Uh, Sarah Pacelli, Pichelli Cinderella's art has been incredible for the first four issues, but you know how much I love me some Dodderman. Uh, he's been killing it on the covers, and I'm excited to see him back in interiors. Uh, this is going to be a really fun ride. Can't wait to pick this up. Let's dig into the synopsis. Just when the Scarlet Witch thinks she's shielded Darcy Lewis from their new enemy's vendetta, Scythia returns, covered in armor made from the same anti-magic rock Wanda's been studying. Can Wanda defend Darcy and herself against a warrior who's immune to magic? That's going to be interesting! I'm excited. I've been loving this series. It's been really, really great. 
you need to be reading this. It's a great little series, and I'm enjoying it. I hope it's an ongoing and not just like a little mini because I've been loving the ride, and I can't wait for the next stop. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Shazam number one. Written by Mark Wade, Art by Dan Mora. What more could you ask for besides Mary Marvel being the champion of Shazam? I know. I know. I know. But she is going to be featuring... She is the co-lead in this book, so I am... I am I'm cautiously optimistic. I want this book to be good. I love the creative team. I love Billy. I love Mary. I love Shazam. I am excited to see uh, see where they go with this. So let's dive into the synopsis. Meet the Captain. The world's finest creators present the world's mightiest mortal in a dazzling solo series. Dinosaurs from space. The clubhouse of eternity. Homicidal worms and talking tigers. Atomic robots, alien worlds, mad scientists, sinister curses, and villains from throughout the DC universe. Welcome to the wild adventures of Billy Batson, whose big red alter ego defends the Earth from its weirdest and wildest threats. Want to stop Lex Luthor and the Joker? Call Superman and Batman. International Crises, Page Wonder Woman. But when Gargwax, Emperor of the Moon, sets his sights on Gorilla City, that's when you shout, Shazam. The fan-favorite team of Mark Wade and Dan Mora brings the magic. I love that synopsis. I think that's really freaking cool. I'm excited to pick this book up. I really do hope that Billy and Mary get even screen time because it seems like they will after the conclusion of uh, Once We Were Gods. Or Revenge of the Gods. So I'm hoping I really love World's Finest. You know how much I love that book. And I'm excited to pick this up. So that does it for this week. Seven big heavy hitters this week to recap. We've got Batman number 135, Spider-Man number 8, The Flash number 798, Immortal X-Men number 11, Adventures of Superman, John Kent number 3, Scarlet Witch number 5, and Shazam number 1. It's not a lot of books, but if you're going to your comic book shop for the first time, it might be a little overwhelming with all of the comics. But the thing that you can do when you walk into that shop, just like Billy Batson, just say the word. And that brings us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Explained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write literally whatever you want. I will be forced to read every single word. As long as you give me those five stars, the sky's the limit on what you can write. And you'll be able to join the likes of our amazing Fantasy 15, including Seafire ND, Joshua Pants to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, A Lock and AZ, Sass, Jedi Jesse 20, Ken 4656, and Director Hall. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of the Geeksplained mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the Wednesday show. If you want to follow us, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for as long as Twitter is around, and as I 
try to figure out how to be good on Instagram at Geeksplained Pod. That's at Geeksplained P O D. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news. And trust me, there is a lot that would be the place to do it. Finally, every single Friday, I, alongside my fellow caped crusaders, are currently going through every single issue of every single volume of Grant Morrison's Batman as part of the Geek Explained Book Club. This week, we are diving into the final chapter of Dick Grayson's time as Batman in Batman Gates of Gotham. It's a five-issue miniseries that we love a whole heck of a lot, so I'm really excited to share that episode with you. Join us this Friday. Gotham Fridays are a real thing. You're going to want to be there. Be there or be square, not a circle, obviously. But that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me for 250 episodes. Thank you once again to Connor Goldsmith of Cerebro for coming on by and joining up and kicking off X-May 2023. I'm really excited to share the conversations that I've had with some amazing guests with you this month. Uh, X-May is always one of my favorite times of the year where I get to have awesome conversations about Marvel's Merry Mutants with some excellent people. So I hope you join me for the rest of this month's festivities. Next week, we are going to be jumping from the comic book page onto the silver screen as I am joined by Troy of the Troyoboyo17 YouTube channel to discuss X-Men in the MCU. We're going to be doing a full retrospective on the X-Men films of old as well as giving our wish list and talking about what we hope to see for the X-Men as they join the MCU in the coming years. Tune in for that next week, part two of X-May, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplained, for 250 episodes, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everyone stay safe, and we will see you next time.